podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K., and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our sixth installment of Under the Influence, where each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guests, will be taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our sixth film that we will be placing under the microscope is the first half of Tarantino's fourth film, the Kung Fu Samurai Western revenge flick, Kill Bill Volume 1. And the films that we will be reviewing this month are Toshiba Fujita's Samurai Revenge film, Lady Snowblood, and Ted V. Michael's Z-grade action film, The Doll Squad. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, Mr. Devon Taylor, and making his first appearance, co-host of Making Tarantino, the podcast, it's Mr. Phil Duke. Welcome, gentlemen, and may Tarantino be with you always. And with you, my good friend. Thank you for uh, having me back. Very excited to uh, dive into the the swath of uh, blood and mayhem that we got coming <laughs> in with this one. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for having me. Z-Grade is right about this doll squad. Like, oh yes. my gosh. I was like, oh my, <laughs> this is off the rails. But if you watch them in the order that I told you them, it's an interesting twofer, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Two, two different yeah. films. Two different yeah. spectrums. Before we get into that, I will ask my good friend Devon before I ask the new person in the Tarantino world. Devon, okay. what is going on with the Spectre Cinema Club podcast? And I do believe you may have something else on the horizon. Would you like to tell the listeners what is new since you were last on talking about black dicks and white mouths back in season one? Yeah, I think I think whenever we did our episodes, that was like right around when we had our name change on the podcast. Uh, it I was. can't remember. Yeah, so so formerly known Blade Blunt Cinema Club, but yeah, Spectre Cinema Club. Uh, we've been going uh, under the new brand now for a good thirty-five episodes now. So we're we got it locked in, and uh, that wow. is a podcast I host with my buddy Gary McDowell, where we explore the various subgenres within horror. Uh, every month we pick a different theme. So right now we're doing some uh, remake comparisons, and we got a celebration of camp horror for uh, Pride Month coming up. So super excited for that. And then uh, until I have at least that full episode recorded of this new project, I can't reveal too much yet. Uh, but just you gotta <laughs> if you stalk me on on the on the interwebs, you you see me talking and making some hints about 
a few certain things. So yeah, uh, another podcast possibly <laughs> in the works, uh, but I, uh, you'll have to stay tuned for more details. You're not going to pull a QT on me and have me go to a book event and say that he's doing a TV show and then you fucking three, four months later do something <laughs> different, right? You're not going to make me look like a fool? You're not going to do that to me, are you? Well, because well, I've already done that to one other podcast. <laughs> I came on that podcast and it was like, oh yeah, here's going to be the second podcast, but then it was like kind of different and it's already changed since that episode. I was like, hey, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just ignore <laughs> That, that part. <laughs> Mr. Duke. So how I found out about you is every once in a while, I would search to see if there's anyone else doing Tarantino. And all of a sudden, the beginning of 2023, there was a second person. And I was like, son of a bitch. Someone's moving in <laughs> on my territory. Get my Hanzo sword. And then, <laughs> yeah. In all honesty, it was uh, it was refreshing. Us writing your name on the window. <laughs> you were. In the frost. <laughs> yes, perfect. We will meet at dawn. But the great thing is, is, you know, as you probably realized, is when I started this podcast now, 18 months ago, I was certain, like I wanted to start this before I did any of my other podcasts. And I thought Tarantino is going to be covered by a million people. There's no point in even trying to get into it. What am I going to be able to bring? That's not going to, you know, it's going to break through the noise. It's not going to happen. So I didn't even research it. Yeah. You know, 18 months ago, my old podcast stops because my, my partner, he's moving on. He's got a new family coming around. So we just kind of had to go our separate ways. But I didn't want to stop podcasting. So I said, you know what? Let's look up Tarantino. Nobody was doing one. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, nobody. And so I was like, yeah. well, fuck, here's my time. Did you find the same kind of like, even though you found mine, but we were kind of like, how the hell is there like literally no one doing Tarantino? Mine was a different, it was really cool, but I was doing another podcast that I used to do called My Celluloid Heart Podcast with me and my cousin. And it was just, we would pick movies that, you know, I love growing up, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden I was like, I kind of... We got bored of like, okay, we're doing Smoking the Bandit 2, Star Trek 2, like do something else. And all of a sudden I came across this thing of like 350 movies that Quentin Tarantino recommends or likes. And I was like, what if we turn this into a podcast? And I think I had heard about your, whenever Reservoir Dogs 30th anniversary came out, yes, I listened to your podcast and I was like, I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like, okay. And then I think on there you might have said it. And I was like, oh, my God, he's right. Like, but my route in was more like, let's do this. And where we're not picking every week where we know what's coming up and like, oh, we got to do blah, blah, blah. I'm going to make it into an Excel spreadsheet. Well, it'll randomly pick what the next one is. So I was like, now my cousin Chip, I go, you understand these are going to be some horrible movies. <laughs> some of them are. And he's like, I'm up for it which normally he's the Marvel guy. He's the Hollywood guy. Like, so he was like, okay. I'm like, sweet. Like nobody else would do that. My friends were like, so you're going to watch them. So nobody else has to, I go, well, maybe kind of, and started it. I said, let's start it in January. And we did. And you know, yeah. And there's this whole community on Twitter and Instagram that I love you and everybody like, it's just great. It's an interesting thing as you're going to find as you go through this. It's like fractions of Tarantino fandom. There are the mm -hmm. straight Tarantino fans who will follow him to the end, like like the MCU people. You know, no matter what yeah, he does, yeah. he, he's yeah. infallible kind of thing. And I, yeah. I used to fall into that camp, but doing this show has opened my eyes to being a little more critical of him yeah. when the moment happens because he's a very critical person himself, which I always find ironic. Yeah. Like, he has a tough time when people say shit about him, but he yeah. will pick anyone he wants apart. But you'll also find that there are the, I would say, like the fans that you're going to be of your show 
show who like him bringing to their forefront movies they've never heard of, which is one of the parts of season two that I enjoyed, which I yeah, thought yeah. of last year. It was like, we're going to go and check out these influences and find out if he's stealing or if he's just using them as reference points and then making them better kind of thing. So it's a fun world and it's still bizarre that there's two of us technically dipping our toes yeah. into the pool and that's it. Like, you know, like no one seems yeah. to have the... Yeah. Especially when video archives came on, you would think there would have yeah. been a bunch, but... You know, knock on wood, yeah, we're doing but good. I enjoy. And again, I, we had a little, I had a little fun moment with you. But I welcome anyone else who wants to do a Tarantino to come in because it's just, yeah. it's fun. It's really interesting because I, I heard on another podcast that they, they kind of talked about, you know, how we have so many movie podcasts going now, and it's kind of the, the next evolution into the, the video store conversations that you used to have. You know, we don't really have yeah. those anymore. So it's like podcasts have like kind of taken that over. And so with QT, it kind of comes full circle because he was, you know. Know, all those video store clerk guys recommending people movies and then now you you're taking that template and then now we have more movies uh, yeah. via so Tarantino is the most famous video store clerk maybe maybe yeah, yeah I would say it has so. to be yeah and you yeah. know I think even if people don't like his movies which is fine you know I, there are gonna be people right. who love him hate him I think still though they respect his choices in films even even yeah. the bizarre ones and I even think like when I we'll get into the doll squad yeah but there's parts of the doll squad even though it's Z I was like this really I can see why a 10 year old Tarantino really enjoyed this film like I yeah. flash back to some of the stuff I was watching in the 80s thinking about like the Beastmaster and going yeah. I looked at the Beastmaster over COVID and I was like oh yeah. it doesn't hold up like I thought <laughs> it did but the young part of me was like but it was the greatest movie ever like when I was a kid yeah. everything was the Beastmaster for me well and real quick the way I look at these things is like you're going to see it in 73 if you went to see the doll squad and if you if us three were in the theater watching it we'd be hitting each other oh my god can you believe that explosion oh yeah. my god and we'd be having a hell of a time and that's why I changed the intro to my thing of Quentin talking about it's the experience of the movie yes. theater. It's either a scene, music that now you just go, well, let me go look it up on YouTube. You couldn't do that back then. You were like, this thing blows up. You got to come and see it. <laughs> come and check this mm -hmm. out. So, yeah. When I got to see his, and if anyone's read the book, he has a chapter in there. I, I think it's at the end. I think it's the end of the book. Uh, when he talks about Floyd, the uh, the gentleman mm -hmm. who kind of really is the man who got him into the exploitation films, especially black exploitation. And they went to see a Jim Brown movie. And I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. But there yeah, was a was moment. The Black Gun. Yeah, The Black Gun. There's a moment in that movie where the audience goes nuts. And he says he's been chasing that reaction mm -hmm. his entire life going to see movies and creating movies is to chase that moment that that audience he saw it with went nuts for it yeah. so again like you said that's kind of the whole thing now unfortunately i have to say to devon i'll talk to you in a few minutes as you know this season i seem to be cock blocking people who've been on more than once because they always seem to be paired up with someone who's new who gets the new guest questions so you never get to get to the second level of guest questions so i do apologize but to make you feel better elwood who was on the reservoir dogs under the influence in january mm -hmm. he's been on two times since and both people he's been with have been their first time so he has only had his one questions he's had to sit there twice and suck it up so hey it's okay i'm not here to hog qt you know <laughs> i gotta we gotta, everybody gets their spotlight so mr duke here they come okay are you, in fact, a Tarantino fan? Yes, I am. Wouldn't it be weird if I was like, no, but I found this thing and I just thought, you know, why not? But yeah. Fuck it. Why not? It's not no. the worst thing in the world to do. <laughs> no. no, I'm a big fan. Yeah. What was your gateway drug into the Tarantino verse? So here's what's funny. My cousin who's on the show with me 
I went to him. I was like, oh, you got to see Pulp Fiction. It's, it's this guy, Quentin Tarantino, doing Pulp Fiction. Like, when it's coming out, we got to go see it. And my cousin's like, motherfucker, I told you about this thing at the video store that I got called Reservoir Dogs. You blew me off. You've been chatting about Quentin Tarantino, and I'm fucking over here going, hello. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I don't listen. I would just found this thing and was like, okay. But I saw that with me and him and two friends. Then after that, I was like, oh, my God, I got to take more people. So I took like 15 people, paid for everybody, said, you got to see this movie. We all saw it. We came out, went to Denny's, you know, did the whole thing. Then I took my dad to go see it. And, like, and, and it was like... It's a thing where I was thinking about this, too, for the show, where you can't even put into words how powerful that movie was at the time, because now you've seen it. But yes. to not ever see that and to have the narrative be different, have these weird stories that are turned on their head, like, you know, and cleaning blood out of the car, like all that <laughs> stuff, me in the house, like, you know, what will happen if your wife comes home, you know? So that was my, <laughs> that was my gateway was that. And then, of course, I went and you know, saw True Romance, saw Reservoir Dogs and all those. So what is your favorite Tarantino film? So this is interesting, but Kill Bill, probably this one, Kill Bill Volume 1 is so, Volume 2 is good for another reason, but Volume volume 1 and 2 together, but Quentin will say, no, those are two, you know, that's how I put them out. That's his excuse. But we all know that he filmed his one. But number one is just so cool with all the, I can't even explain it. the way that kitchen looks when she rings the doorbell and just you hear that Ironside music mm -hmm. and it's just amazing. So, yeah, it would be uh, Kill Bill, but then always Pulp Fiction's the hit that you're just like, you know, got to go back to. In your opinion, what is Tarantino's most underappreciated film? This is where I took Jackie Brown. But also I think a lot of people don't. I remember seeing and you talked about it on your show. You went and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and people were like, that wasn't a Tarantino movie. No heads exploded. You know, they got beat up at the end, but nothing happened. There was no great conversation. There was nothing going on. And we followed this guy driving from one house to another for 15 minutes. What the <laughs> fuck? And when you watch it, it was one of those you had to go home and sit with and be like, wait a minute, I don't know. And then you go see it. So then I went and saw it three, four times in the theater and was like, no, this is a masterpiece. Like, this is great. Like, people were like, oh, Inglorious Bastards is a masterpiece. No, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his masterpiece. But yeah, Jackie Brown is like, that's where I was like, oh my God, Pam Greer is beautiful. Like, you first met Robert Forrester and you're like, I love this guy. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Like, you're like, oh, <laughs> Tony Lister's in here. Like, holy shit. And if you've heard the other episode, and I, I know you're, we're both of, a, of an older age now, but you grow into that film, too. You age with that film. And I think younger, yeah. nothing, this is not an attack on Mr. Devon. He's a fantastic. Yeah. But he is a little yeah. younger than us. He's, he's yeah, still yeah. in his spry years. <laughs> he was born into a world with Tarantino, and we were uh, thrust into it. But when I saw Jackie Brown in my early, mid-20s, loved it. But again, didn't understand the romance. Now in my late 40s, yeah. I go, oh, I'm, I'm the age of almost Jackie Brown now as yeah. in, in the movie. And so totally yeah. understand. And it's such a, it's a different film. Like it really is one of those films that you really age into. You know, when you see it young, you might like some of the cool banter and some of the cool stuff. But yeah. it's not until you've, you know, you've that. been that seasoned person who's gone through heartache and this and that. And then you grow into, you go, oh yeah, that's a really good love story. It's almost the same thing as it's that scene in the kitchen of them talking. That's just so great. It's just so natural. 
but it's almost like I remember after Heat came out and everybody's like, oh, the scene with De Niro and Pacino. And I was like, fuck that. Like, I don't. <laughs> and then later you get older and you're like, that's a great fucking scene. Like, yes, them at the diner. Like, yeah. The other reason why Jackie Brown's so important to me is we went and saw it Christmas morning. My cousin and I leave Christmas dinner in the morning. We're like, let's go see this movie. Go to see Jackie Brown. We're sitting there. It's us and two other people. And the power goes out right after he's like, here, don't mess with the levels. Take my keys. Don't mess with the levels. <laughs> power goes out. And it's out for, it seemed like, an hour. But we're like, should we leave or do we wait? And we were kind of waiting for this other couple maybe, but also I was this big Tarantino, like, this is after Pulp Fiction. Come on. So then the power comes on, and then that makes it even better. Like, we waited for the, yeah. you know. So, yeah. Who is your all-time favorite character in the vast Tarantino-verse? So... I really like Cliff in the movie and the book, mm -hmm. but oh, yeah. Jimmy, I was thinking about this today when I was answering the questions. I was like, my wife's a nurse. I only work three days a week. I don't know what the fuck Jimmy did, but <laughs> I just, I walk around, drink coffee and I'm off for four days. Like I got nothing to do. You know, Oak's nice. I'll take some Oak. You know? <laughs> so I like Jimmy because Jimmy was just different, you know, granted it was Quentin, but just the dialogue, everything coming out of that and him just, you know, being like, no, don't, I don't give a shit about that. What's on my mind is this, not this. And you're like, oh shit. I know that's a twofer, but I'm sorry. No, no. You, and you're Cliff. like the second yeah. person to, to, to pick Jimmy. It may be Tarantino's, I don't know. It's a controversial role from now as we've gone down through time, but it may mm -hmm. be one of his better ones. Maybe. I still think uh, Baghead in uh, Django, because you don't know it's him. But when, right, once right. you know it's him, <laughs> right, right. You, you, really, you really appreciate him leaning into his Tennessee roots. At the end, when he's doing his, doing his Australian accent, oh, he's geez. like, just yeah. leave. Just it may be his be best Australian. and worst role in one film. Like playing the Tennessee guy, making fun of his old, yeah. where yeah. he's from, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Trying to be an Australian guy, not so good. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Yeah. Now, whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to in this last film? Or even, I'll even change it up to bring back in this last film. If, in fact, it is his last film. Because right, this right. cocksucker has flipped it on me already twice in under six months. So, I'm a little upset with it. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, again, I'll say something that uh, Scott will know and you won't. But um, a show called Fall Guy. The Fall Guy with Lee Majors. And, and just recently on... Uh, video archives they talked about Lee Majors and I was like Lee Majors would be good if he brought him back and like put him in some kind of badass cool role you know yeah it'd be awesome so yeah I think Lee Majors but there's all kinds of people that you run into where you're like the girl from Snowblood is still alive and you're like what if he brought yeah. her out and like yeah. made her something badass like so well all great answers and now you have finally officially made it through the hot seat for your first guest questions so Yay. we can start jumping into these films. But before we do, how do we feel about Kill Bill? And yes, it is broken up into two, but I rewatched both of them this past weekend. It does say his fourth film at the beginning of Kill Bill. And we do have consecutive chapter markers. Volume 1 ends mm. at chapter 5. Volume mm. 2 starts at chapter 6. He does go consecutively through. It was meant to be one film. The lovely Weinsteins are the reason we broke that film up. Yeah. And my kids were young at the time. That's a little sidetrack, but... Uh, mm -hmm. My son and I would go to see the Harry Potter movies, and the last of the Harry Potter films, The Deathly Hollow, no, not Deathly Hallows, 
I'm sorry. Yeah, the, Deadly Alice. It was yeah, Deadly yeah, Alice. Yeah. They broke two, that into part yeah. one and part two, and I can't help but think that maybe they took a little page out of Tarantino's playbook here because you yeah. can't tell me that you were able to do the other mo- the other books in one film, and yeah. also you're like this last book, it's got to be two films. You know what I mean? Like, look, I don't I don't begrudge them for the money grab because we want to see both <laughs> yeah, of them. I was I'm just say, saying, like, they definitely yeah, leaned into it. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah they're like, having this last film would do two parts. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, it. But I mean, obviously Tarantino didn't want to split it, but they had to. But I mean, Tarantino, he's obviously not mad about those about those checks either, about those box office numbers. No, so, yeah, I could <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely see it. Um, that being the case, uh, I rewatched both of them. Well, kind of half rewatched them. I had it on at the bar, which is fun though. We had it on the projector yeah. and we're drinking and stuff, so it's still a good time. And um, uh, but I didn't like take notes on it this time. Uh, I do favor Volume Two if um, wow, we are looking good. at. As two films, oh yeah, uh, I think I think Volume Two is like his most underrated film, honestly. Like if you're if you have to split them up against each other, um, I, I think Two kind of feels like a more traditional, cohesive film versus uh, in rewatching One. Like as much as I love the action set pieces and things like that, uh, the structure is a bit clunky uh, for just um, in kind of. I guess, um, again, splitting this big story up into two. And uh, so, like, kind of, I feel like, I feel like if he was able to keep it all together, he wouldn't have had the Vernita scene at the beginning. It feels so weird to me. And the way that the the movie kind of bounces from these different sections between uh, Vernita, the hospital, and then the sword stuff, and then eventually again to, to Oranishi. I feel like if it was one big movie, the Vernita Green one and Banth beginning of the movie. I don't know. It just feels very weird to me. Um, and then kind of him doing the homages of mixing in like the animation. We have scenes in black and white. Um, and we kind of have a lot of these changes like in a very short section. And just it, it does feel a little bit messy to me just because he doesn't do this a lot. You know, we're not really he doesn't traditionally mix other types of media in. But, you know, as we'll talk about in Lady Snowblood, it's a you know a direct homage to that, mm-hmm. but I don't yeah. know. So so a lot of as much as as many of the highlights that Kill Bill Volume One has with the action, the 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 visual, um, the the imagery, and uh, some of these things uh, are really good. But it just doesn't hold up like as a like film together. So like that's why I do always watch them together. But if I'm only gonna watch one of them, I'm gonna put on Volume Two uh, personally. Very fair. And the the black and white is because of. Unfortunately, if we if he ever put out the freaking whole bloody whole affair, bloody. which he promised he, for years, he's promised it and never came out. The black yeah. and white was because there was so much death and blood in the House of Blue Leaves. It was the only way he could slip it by the censors to not get an X rating. That's how. That's yeah. why we go black and white. And, and look, yeah. and, and give him credit, mm-hmm. he does it on the eye snatch, <laughs> which which will yeah. be a callback to an episode two to volume two when he she eye snatches good old uh, L Dragon. No, I was just gonna say I'd have to look at my letterbox because now I'm thinking that you're right. That part two, I might have rated better than part one because of the, you know, spaghetti western stuff, whatever. But there's, like you said, there's those set pieces that you love. You love the Brian De Palma hospital stuff. You love the fight at Vernita Green's house. You love, like, you know, so. The whole And, and watching thing. part two, I never thought of that. If you have to watch it, watch part two because that'll have an end. You know how it begins. Let's watch the end mm-hmm. now, which is cool. And then, you know. What I was thinking, well, we'll get to it when we talk about Lady Snowblood, but I was thinking how to end Kill Bill. If you ended it like Snowblood, where she answered the door, it was pizza or something, and <laughs> little girls 
stabs her. Yeah. But everybody be like, what the fuck? The bride went through all this shit. And now you, you know. Well, I've said this before, and I don't know how much either of you have heard it, but I'll say it again because why not? Before I went to Iraq, the screenplay was, was, was online. So I read the screenplay before I went to Iraq. And Me the disappointing too. thing of it going into two parts is what happens in near the end of two. The things I don't like about either of the films, I don't like the ending of one because I don't like the cliffhanger, which he had to make a cliffhanger because obviously right. he wants you to come back for two. I totally yeah. understand it. And yeah. I hate the opening of two because I think it's just stupid, her drive around talking. We know what's going on. But he has to do it to recap people because let's be honest, people yeah. are stupid. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, we just know this, yeah. right? So yeah. the movie Idiocracy is really almost basically what we are now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. scary. And so, Fast and Furious. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Coming. And so I, those two parts I hate, but I know why they're there. But the thing about the script that was awesome, which I wish, you know, now there's no world where I've lived in where we get to see the thing all together at once and know the yeah. surprise. But it's when she makes the corner at Bill's Hacienda and points the gun and there's BB. You don't know mm-hmm. BB's alive. You don't know. I mean, yeah. this whole movie yeah. is about yeah. her getting revenge for the loss of her daughter. At the end of the day, she didn't die. So it's a yeah. it's a flip. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you think she's killing all these people because she's got to get mm-hmm. Bill for that motherfucker for what she did and killed her daughter. And next thing you know is, nope, she's alive. And you just, you learn about it the minute she makes the corner and you're like, holy shit, that's a twist. Her acting in that, it's like mm. like from anger to softness to I'm going to play dead. Mm-hmm. Like, And then when she hugs BB and she's looking yeah. at Bill with that, oh, you yeah. motherfucker, that yeah. look we've all yeah. seen, you yeah. motherfucker. Yeah. And yet yeah. she can't let the yeah. girl see it. Oh. So that's the one disappointment of this being broken into two films, mm. you know. But, okay, hey, yeah. look. It gives me extra stuff to do on the podcast. I'm gonna be honest. But, you know, yeah, I'm, gonna, exactly. I'm gonna be a whore. Yeah, you, I'm gonna be a big whore gives myself. You a couple more months. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've never met somebody else who read that script like I did. Like I read it before the movie came out. Oh, and I said, I said, should I read it? Or should I be surprised? I'm gonna read it. And what's always in my head is when she's up in that treehouse and Bonnie comes to her to doctor her up because mm-hmm. she got fucked up. And you're like, oh, there's Bonnie, Jimmy's Bonnie that we never met. Yep. We saw in like a made up thing. But here's Bonnie helping her in the treehouse. And I was like, I want to see that. Like, come on. I wonder if Bonnie makes an appearance in the last one. because She was supposed to be in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> in a little cut scene. She's supposed, she's supposed to be the nurse that they bring the, the snake charmer. Look at your fucking yeah. snake charmer. So <laughs> Bonnie's supposed to be in all these movies. She just never, yeah. she never made the gut. Except for yeah. the one scene with Jimmy. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Kill Bill, Volume 1. Let the investigation begin. All right, well, let's get into the very first film. And that first film is the 1973 Samurai Revenge film, Lady Snowblood, which has a Criterion Collection edition for it. It's time to call our first witness. Our first witness is the 1973 Samurai Revenge film, Lady Snowblood, based on a manga series of the same name, written by Nora Osada and directed by Toshiba Fujita. Starring Siko Kaji, Toshio Kurosawa, Masaki Damon, Miyoko Akaza, and Ko Nishimura. With an IMDb rating of 7.6 and a 100 critics and 85 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, a strikingly beautiful woman is trained from birth to be a deadly instrument of revenge against the swindlers who destroyed her family. Now taking the witness stand, 
Lady Snowblood. Now, the basis of this film, it, it's a similar tones of what we're watching Kill Bill, but in this one, a woman has a baby in prison, and then that baby is tasked with getting revenge for the reason she ended up in prison, which was she had another child. She mm-hmm. had a husband. They were becoming a school teacher. During this time in China where there were conscripts, people were being forced into military service, late 1800s, and then anyone wearing white was like expected to be a conscript. This guy decided to show up in white foolishly, and they kill him. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't even ask questions. He said, I'm yeah. a school teacher. They don't give a shit. It's, it's, like, it's almost like America. I knocked on the door. You got the wrong door. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I'm shooting you out. Anyways, so he gets brutally murdered. The kid, we find out, gets murdered. And she's raped and all kinds of horrible things happen to her. And then she eventually gets some kind of revenge on one of them and goes to prison before she can fulfill her revenge. And then we'll get into it from other stuff. We'll we'll touch on some points before we go to the influences. Now it's it's Yuki, who's her name, but she's also known as Lady Snow. But it's now her destiny from the time of birth to now get revenge. (laughs) I thought I was like, that's fucked up. This poor girl, her life is fucked. Like, like, you imagine if you were born... She's got nothing. She's yeah, Phil. You imagine like you were born and your dad's like, you must avenge me. You've never said a word the rest of your life. I've got to avenge my father. Don't even know if he was a good person. He could be a total yeah. prick for all I know. Yeah, i got to yeah, avenge yeah. this Kongsucker. Yeah. My whole life is avenging yeah. for this Kongsucker. So it's just an interesting beginning to the film. You're kind of like, damn. Like, Jesus, that's a that's a harsh life to be born into. Uh, well, I was going to ask, had you guys seen this before? I had seen it before. I had and, seen it before, yes. Like, But only like a couple years ago. And then the other thing, I watch these in a different order because my wife's like, I don't want to watch Japanese shit while I'm trying to sleep. Put on something American. Put on that other thing. (laughs) So luckily I was able to watch Doll Squad and then the other one. But yes, if you're watching the one, then you're like, oh. Like you said. Maybe that is the smarter way to go. Maybe you get yourself leaned yeah. into. That's the way I went to. You went doll to okay. you went doll to lady. Uh, yeah, I, I I hadn't seen either one of these, and because I I watched the Kill Bills last night, so I woke up early to watch both of these. I was like, all right, if I'm gonna watch one of them earlier in the morning. Uh, I feel like I'm gonna be talking about Snowboard more. So <laughs> let me go ahead and watch Doll Squad first. Um, but yeah. and uh, and I had bought I had bought the Criterion Collection like right around the time when you were announcing doing this. So I had waited. I did not watch it. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. episode. For you, you're welcome, yes. Well, I was uh, worried that after you guys watched <laughs> Doll Squad, I was like, I might get two messages saying, you know what, Scott, I'm not going to be able to make this this, this, <laughs> this month's episode. I appreciate you wanting me on, but I'm yeah. going to be busy. I was like, geez, they may not want to go on. You needed something to look forward to, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it feels very, like now, like looking back at Kill Bill Volume 1, I was like, and, and the whole experience itself, because I really, I think you could, you know, extend the influence into Volume 2 as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like when you kind of yeah. take the whole story, it's like yeah. a it's like a reverse companion piece to Lady mm-hmm. Snowblood, essentially, and uh, kind of taking that thing, but then like expanding, you know, the layers on it. But then, you know, this is a very good example of, yeah, he's taking a lot and he's copying a lot, but it's like, okay, if you're going to do that, if you're going to pay an homage, you got like not only, you know, do it well, but you also got add to it, yeah, you know? Agreed. So yeah. mm-hmm. yes, he does take a lot of elements out of this, but there's so many things that he adds onto it and makes it his own. And that's, you know, part of what makes him a really good director because yeah, yeah he is pulling, you know, influence from, 
all these other greats, but he is so good at taking them, twisting them into his narrative and making them his own. Uh, and so now getting to see Lady Snowblood um, and its influence through the rest of it, uh, I was uh, you know very impressed. I, but I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was uh, quite quite fun in the way that it's uh, kind of uh, broken up, and you kind of see again structural similarities again, but it just kind of feels a little bit more uh, cohesive in this one. And uh, and it it's has a, uh, a, a you know doesn't have any emotion like of it like other than revenge you know throughout the you know yeah. runtime of this yeah. movie up until that final scene yeah and then yeah. like you know that little burst of energy or of emotion that we finally do get is like so satisfying like in the way that they kind of present Yuki as you know she's I mean yeah she's a, a person technically yeah. but they also like say she's like kind of not like with yeah, the, yeah. the mythology of the yeah, Asura yeah. that they go into and so it's like you know again like she her life has had nothing of her own she is only for this purpose yeah so it's like you're kind of watching her and like throughout the movie she does feel less and less human because she is just kind of this vessel and then finally whenever you are reminded that she is a person whenever she kind of gets you know something for herself at the end of the movie finally uh it's like yeah. uh really amazing so i had a i had a blast with this one yeah it's that clint eastwood thing of like not saying like just few words like and that like you said with no emotion that's what's great and like you said scott you understand like oh shit this this girl has nothing she had no life like this mm-hmm. is just revenge she's just a machine like you know yeah She's a, so. she's the T eight hundred. She's yeah, the original yeah. Terminator. She was sent into the future, yeah. oh my <laughs> into God, the future to kill. Yeah. yeah, I actually think the Terminator stole from this. I'm just kidding. James yeah, Cameron. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's change it up real quick. Yeah, Church of Cameron. Yeah. This movie's actually the reason I decided to was one of the reasons I decided to do the influences because when HBO Max finally kind of came together and they started to put like the criterions and stuff on it, I saw Lady Snowblood on there, and one night I was like, you know what? I know this has got references for Kill Bill. I'm going to watch this. And like you said, I absolutely loved it. And I was watching it. I go, holy shit. Like, it was the first movie I'd seen that they had talked about Tarantino having reference. Like, the opening we're going to get into. But I yeah. will say, do not see Lady Snowblood 2 because it is garbage. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, I agree. it is absolute shit, which is disappointing. He's like, I just bought the two pack. I gotta uh, watch it. Well, I mean, if I mean, look, watch it. Maybe I'm wrong, and you know, and that was just fine. But no, I, I watched. It I didn't and I like thought, the second one either. Yeah, no, and I watched it like the next night too. Like mm. when I first watched, I was like, if Lady Snowblood's good, two's got to be good. And the problem is, is there's no more revenge. And so yeah. once there's no more yeah. revenge, you just kind of like the synopsis oh. for the second one. And I was already not excited after yeah. seeing this. I was like, wait, for what we just got out of this first yeah. one, this is what we're going to do in the second yeah. one. So like, I'm already not excited to watch it. But I mean, I'm gonna got the two. Yeah. Back. Well, gonna. you actually yeah. hope that what happened when once you watch two, you're going to wish that the ending of one had actually played out fully. And there hadn't been like a, da, da, da. <laughs> I am an Asura, I'm immortal. You're kind of like, nah, I kind of wish you weren't. You know, Can we got a director's cut. She doesn't survive that part. Yeah. And we just, we get this beautiful, sad ending, right? Because wouldn't it be beautiful yeah. that we spend the entire film and she's yeah. getting all this revenge, doesn't have a life of her own, finally finishes her mom's vendetta, and then... She never has a life because of her mom's yeah. vendetta. It also takes her life. Like that would have been if Tarantino had actually yeah. done Lady Snowblood. I think that's how he would have ended Lady Snowblood. Is yeah. they would have ended with the actual. Yeah, it would have cut right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he didn't do it. So no, that's that's where um, something I was thinking about too. So when I saw Kill Bill, when I was like, you know, like we said, it's weird that we've all done it. At least you and me, Scott, is like. 
oh, what did Quentin like for Pulp Fiction? Okay, and then you go watch all these movies. And with Kill Bill, I remember I didn't watch Lady Snowblood because I think at the time back then I couldn't find it. Yeah, it's, but it's, hard, it's hard find to find the, Asian cinema. But I found the female prisoner movies, and that's got a song, I think, in the second movie. And so I watched all those, and I was like, holy shit, but those aren't nearly as, like you said, this one is so beautiful with the way it's directed, with, you know, cinematography, but also with chapter one, chapter, and you're like, oh my God, like these could be direct Tarantino chapters, like, yeah. and yeah, it's just so good. And just that op- just opens with her walking in the snow and like, so cool. And everybody asking her why, why, <laughs> you know, and she just killing everybody, not telling yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> and this was the first time I learned that this is a, uh, a genre film called Chanbara, which is Japanese mm-hmm. sword fighting films or period action flicks that star samurai warriors, which should be known, but that's where Kira Kurosawa basically spent his entire career in. And I mean, yeah. he's the master of this genre and you know i guess you would think that if tarantino was gonna you know be influenced by a samurai film it's crazy that it's lady snowblood but it makes so much sense when you watch kill bill as opposed to all the epics that kurosawa does and again this isn't the first like a man named george lucas was a big fan of kurosawa and i'm a huge star wars fan in case those can't see but i've got darth vader and stuff so huge fan of star wars and and, yeah. yeah well that's what's interesting with Tarantino. And this is where we said, like, you and I aren't like, oh, sucking the dick of Tarantino. Like, if Chip and I watch a movie that's no good, we're going to say, like, this was no good. I don't know what Tarantino saw in it, whatever. And also, like Chip said, he goes, we don't know on our first episode. He's like, we don't know if he sits to pee or stands up to pee. We're not saying <laughs> making Tarantino, this is what made the man. We're saying this is what made him make movies yeah. from what he likes. And the thing with that is... In a way, he's like, I don't want to be the, I like Kurosawa guy. Yeah. And so he's going to go, I like Lady Snowblood because it's weird and different and color instead of like, I like Ron or I like Roshiman yeah. or whatever, you know. But something that's funny about uh, influences and stuff, back on my other podcast, we did one on uh, Fistful of Dollars and uh, Yojimbo. So after he put out Fistful of Dollars, Akira Kurosawa wrote him and said, I like your film. It's a good film, but it's my film. Pay me money. (laughs) Pretty much. Because all Sergio Leone did was just everybody went and saw Yojimbo and kept going. Okay, what'd they do this time? Oh, they did that. Oh, yeah. What happened then? Okay. And then they just wrote a script out of that and made it a Western. And when you watch it, you're like, oh, wow. And Kurosawa does it way better when he's listening to them talk, when he's at the other house. But anyway, that's... Magnificent Seven is a direct yeah. rip of the Seven Samurai. Exactly. And that's what I think, in a way, Tarantino, sometimes you're like, just say like that you like a Hitchcock or you yeah. like this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he, he can't. And that's why I don't mind doing these these episodes. And if he, like you said, if he's done something, I'll say, you know what? You took this. It's yeah. okay because he's not above being criticized. If you're yeah, going to criticize yeah. people, mm-hmm. you know, can't be above criticism. Yeah. Which yeah. Is perfectly you're fine. putting something out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Any art is up to is up for criticism. And it makes sense that he'd be attracted to to something like this, you know, as opposed to, you know, something by Kurosawa, because I feel like that's what Fujita was doing here with Snowballs and taking, you know, that Kurosawa format mm-hmm. and then, you know, kind of yeah. you know, putting putting Amping the more grit and bite to it, you know, because I mean this is, you know, a lot of those epics are great, you know, and they have action stuff in, but they uh 
all kind of don't, they kind of feel a little not tactile. They don't feel like, you know, that there's, you know, they feel like a story versus in this. It's like you kind of have this thing where it's like, no, this is in a reality where these villages are getting, uh, you know, swindled by these criminals. People are just getting mm-hmm. killed. People are getting raped left and right. And it's just like, yeah. no, like this is kind of, you know, like taking that format and like kind of making it more realistic, but then hyper realistic on top of yeah, that, which yeah. is, you know, obviously what Tarantino would kind of do with Django versus, you know, traditional Westerns that he was you yeah. know, in the influence. So it makes sense that he would be attracted to this. Well, plus it's got a female star. I can't think of a Kurosawa film right now. I'll tell my head that has a female led yeah. samurai type warrior. They're all males. So you know, even early seventies, and this is, we're talking about a, a culture and society where women aren't exactly looked at as being superior yeah. to men. They're looked at, you know, the geisha kind of crowd. They, they have, they're the ones to be subservient to men and, and, and they're there to, for the man's purpose. And now we've got this woman who is just wreaking yeah. fucking havoc on people, yeah. you know, looking all dainty. Oh, I'm just little, I'm nobody. And then her umbrella fucking turns into fucking knives of death and motherfuckers can't cut yeah. in half. And you're kind of like, damn. And, and it's 1973. 1973 Japan. Yeah. So as much as we want to tout Tarantino for his pro-female stance and him pushing strong female characters, you know, his upbringing, but also at the age yeah. of 10, seeing this yeah. with his upbringing, yeah. I mean, no wonder we have the bride. Yeah, yeah. No wonder we have such strong female characters in his films. You know, he was drawn to this. He wasn't drawn to the male magnetism so much, you know? Yeah. It may be why he's drawn more to strong black male characters and then female mm-hmm. characters because those are the films that really influence and kind of imprinted on him as at a young age. And having, an, having a single mother and yes. having the boyfriends, you know, and all that. But also the thing with different than Kurosawa was then, you know, I was two when this movie came out. So, and I didn't go to, you know, I didn't go to theater <laughs> two years old, but it's like when Wild Bunch comes out, that changes Westerns. And when the code breaks and Bonnie and Clyde come out, then everybody's like, oh, we can shoot a guy in the face riding on the running board. Like, this is cool. <laughs> and then with this, so, and I don't know how it happened all over the world, but Japan then is like, we could do blood like crazy. And even the stabbing stuff that's cool is when she stabs that guy in the back when he's raping her in the barn and she's pushing on it to try to get it in and then also pull it out. Now, as an actor, maybe it was, you had to punch a hole in the thing yeah. to make it spurt when <laughs> yeah. you pull it out, but it looks real. Like she's trying to jam it into his back instead of just stabby stab with a fake knife or something. Mm-hmm. But then it, but then this movie does have like, it. this is my favorite blood in movies. That, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. uh, we see Jalo kind of take this yeah. form. Like, yeah. you know, it's very liquidy. It's opaque and very bright yeah. um, and spurts everywhere. Obviously not, you know, doesn't have the consistency that real blood has at all. Um, but I love that, and it works so well, obviously, oh, you know, yes. with the blood sprays against snow. I mean, so many of the deaths, you know, obviously the guy wearing the white suit, you know, when he gets stabbed by the four people. Yeah. And then within yeah. 30 seconds, that suit is yeah. just completely soaked. <laughs> and uh, so, so violent. Yeah. But I want to commend you for being younger than us and for loving that. My wife's 10 years younger than me, and she'll see a 70s movie with the blood, and she's like, what, did they spill a can of tomato soup? What's going on? And I'm like, no, no, it's blood. That's how blood was done back there. Well, I'm oh, yeah. 
I'm I'm 70s over 80s. Like 70s yeah. stuff is like definitely my jam. So like oh, yeah. I, I love a lot of the, the the choices here. This uh it very much fits firmly in like my kind of shit. I didn't That's put this awesome. down in the influences, which I probably should have. The sneakers that Gogo wears are white Nikes, so that when her foot actually gets stabbed, I rewatched it the day and was oh. paying it. This is the first time I really paid attention yeah. to it. Now mm, her yeah. white mm-hmm. Nike sneaker is soaked. I mean, it looks like a bright red. She gets hit twice. That she gets cut. It's yeah. the foot and the head. Where's yeah. the best looking blood? That foot is soaked. Yeah. That white sneaker is yeah. soaked. And then she's got that blood coming out of her face. So it's just there to make it pop. Like, yes. you know, her umbrella like has oh, a bunch of white yes. on it. Her kimono yes. has white. So it's just like for every time this happens, like it just yes. it looks so good. And talking about the blood splattering on the snow was like I read the Francois Truffaut talking to Hitchcock book. And Hitchcock said, I always want to do a scene of like white flowers where somebody gets slashed and the blood splashes on the flowers. And this is years ago. And now it's like in 73, they did that. It's like, cool. And then Tarantino does it in Django. Yes, with, uh, in the cotton field. It's the cotton. Yeah. So then he gets to do yeah. it too. Yeah, which that's might be one of the best. But the that whole, that guy writing and but <laughs> yeah. um it's that thing of him using the blood, too. He uses that same kind of blood. He's like, I'm not going to use realistic blood, well, unless it's like Reservoir Dogs, but usually he'll use that kind of fake blood. Oh, I know what I was going to say. At the end, when she's looking for that final girl, well, that was going to be the final girl, and her face looks like she has... Um, Kabuki makeup? No, has she's got blood spots on her, but it looks... Freckles. Freckles is the word I was looking for, but it looks like she has freckles, and you're like, oh, that's the blood. Like, that's something cool that they did that they didn't have to do that some movies don't, like we'll talk about later. But <laughs> it's really cool. And I, I just love that stuff. And I love, I love all the Japanese movies. Like, you know. Well, what I actually really love in this film, and again, I don't know what transfer you have for your for the film. So I believe it was the Criterion Collection that's on HBO Max. So I believe that's it's yours. But the transfer is direct transfer from the original film. They don't go through and try to get out the cracks and the pops. And mm-hmm. for those, and again, I'm not trying to take a shot on you because you're younger than us. I'm actually, you right. know, hey, congratulations on being younger than us. <laughs> but it's that for those of us who even remember back in the day when, you know, wasn't all digital, but when the film plays for a long time, there's snaps, there's cracks, there's all kinds of things just because the film goes through and the light starts to burn. You know, eventually, like, I used to work in a theater and when that fucking Titanic movie was out, it played so many times, it actually caught fire. You would see yeah. sections missing of films because they play for too long. Sometimes mm-hmm. they catch fire because yeah. it's too much wear and tear. And so you have to cut those pieces out and you snip it back together and all of a sudden things jump. But I like that there was the cracks and even the audio, like, even the edits were, were bad. So you could tell, like, even the, you know, whoever put it together may not have done a great job with the tape. So I appreciated that because it reminded yeah. me of Death Proof, and that's what they were going for. But if anyone yeah. who doesn't understand what they were going for in Death Proof, watch the, you know the version they've got at least on HBO Max, and I'm assuming it's probably on your yours, Devon, because you have the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. But you can hear the crackles, the snaps. You can hear the actual film. Yeah. It kind of for a minute there, I was like, wait, a minute, am I actually watching this in the theater? Because it had that that essence, that oh, feel yeah. to it. I need that texture. Like I love having like that texture in these like you know. 70s films and and even like with you know the way that we have all these different media transfers now 
uh, when I get things on Blu-ray, I get it on Blu-ray. Like I, I don't want the 4K, you know, film restoration of it because even if it is still from the original film and then you're restoring it to 4K, it's not the same. Like you're you're going to clean it up too much, you know. So at least with Blu-ray, it does uh, still kind of, you know, it's just a kind of the standard HD. But I prefer that, you know, like, uh, you know, that's part of the reason I still like watching stuff on VHS if I can um, and things like that. So no, my projector is not caught on fire. I'm not that old, unfortunately. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, you know yeah. I, I'm, I you know I, I appreciate the texture. That's a, a lot. that's a scary moment though. I mean it's not Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. The whole theater is going to go up. But when yeah. it does catch on fire, it's well, a panic because you got to st- yeah. And then you have yeah to, you got to yeah. stop the film. Yeah, you have to, and you can't just rewind. It's no. on a big spool. And yeah, I used to work at the drive-in. Yep. They had a big spool. They put it on wrong. We were going to watch Batman 1989. They put it on wrong and they go to run it and it's backwards. So they had to run it through. To run it again, yep. to, and so it was daylight. Mm-hmm. We're at a drive-in movie theater. Daylight's almost coming. That end scene in the bell tower, you can't even see. Like I'm <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, but something about that. You were talking about 4K and Blu-ray. Um, we semi-recently, whenever when this comes out, it'll be later. But we did Scarface, and they were saying that Scarface, when they remastered it. People were like, "What the fuck? Like it's not remastered. It looks like shit." Or like you were saying that. You got uh, Predator comes out on Blu-ray, and you watch it, and you're like, something wrong here. Like, his face is too just polished, too shiny. Like, something's wrong. Like, give me a little bit of roughness. Certain films, the the transfer is good, and certain films, it's not. Like, the 4K transfer of True Romance is beautiful. But like you said, with Predator, sometimes you... I, I mean, I love Predator. We, I want to get... We'll, we'll start going on another... Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the only but, thing I would disagree yeah, with you, Devon, they... is the 80s for action and sci-fi. I think it's some of the best in the decades, of all decades. Maybe not great storytelling yeah. as far as like these gritty stories we're getting into, but for action and sci-fi, whew. And for us going to the theater back then and seeing that was like... You know, just mm-hmm. mind blowing. But yeah, sometimes they go too far and they're like, we polished it up. But then like there's the old ones, the old movies that they restore that they put a lot of work in. Yeah. Taking out all the little hairs and everything out of the gate or whatever. Yeah, I can appreciate that too. So I'm just going to, before we dive into the influences, we're going to go through a few of the things I really enjoy about this film that were just strange. Okay. Now, the first village she goes into, that was like a Japanese version of a modern day American trailer park. That felt like, <laughs> I was like, Woof, this is, was this Mississippi? Like, where, where are we? And then they're dancing around her. We're going to share her. I'm like, I was like, this is unbelievable. And the one guy says, the vagina goddess has blessed them. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Part of me was like, I shouldn't be enjoying this. But I was like, man, the 70s, like there was just some balls out stuff they used to get away with in the 70s. I was like, damn, can you imagine a movie today? Where that yeah. was like, imagine Midsommar <laughs> being like the vagina yeah. goddess. People, people lost their fucking <laughs> shit on Ari ass. They'd have lost their yeah. mind yeah. if someone says the vagina right before they're going to rape her and pass her around. Yeah. They're going to run. Basically, they're going to yeah. run a train. Let's not mix yeah. words. It's going to be a train yeah. with a horrible bukkake mm-hmm. fest, and they're going to say that the vagina goddess has blessed them yeah. with the ability to rape a young woman. And I was like, whoa, yeah. okay. I was like, all right, okay. That was yeah. interesting. It, 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 and it's interesting too because they kind of put a lot of that this kind of stuff in the front like first 20 minutes of this movie the first 20 minutes of the movie is like kind of where we see like the the brutal rape scene Mm -hmm. where we uh have like this you we think is about to be another one and it's just like you know like in that they pack so much in it 
then after this, like, it's like whenever we see, like, you know, like, oh no, if that guy like didn't come, she was about to slaughter all of them. And like, yes. And and throughout the rest of the movie, you know, she never, um, you know, like through the rest of the movie, she isn't sexualized because she doesn't allow it. But she also doesn't like ever have to use herself as like a woman, you know, in any of it no. either. Like she is just straight business. And yeah. it's like, and it's kind of interesting because like her mom was like, you know, created <laughs> her the oppositely as like, well, I'm going to get revenge. Yeah. But first I got to sleep with all these dudes to make sure I get pregnant. So that way I can have this, you know, spawn to pass on is just like, so it's the complete opposite of like, she very much like, you know, using herself as a woman to kind of further plan versus Yuki. Uh-uh. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't matter with her. She's just like, no, no. Like, yeah. You know, the, even the way that she, you know, looks at people whenever they like, you know, follow her for too long or something. It's like, she's like, Hey, no, like you're gonna Like, and she's, she's got that revenge on her mind where, um, even when the last guy, he's like, Oh, that one, he just left. And she's like going after him. And it's like, wait a minute, you're don't fight with your head. Like, think about this, like, hang on a minute. But she just like, I got to kill. That's the yeah. bad guy. I got to kill. Like, that's all she's thinking about when her mom was like, well, when know. the movie starts, you think that the revenge is because the mom was raped and this child that she's just had has been through some kind of rape. Yeah. And then that's where the revenge is. Mm-hmm. And you, boy, that nope. flips you when you find out the mom was like, no, nah, I was a whore. I was straight up whore. Yeah. I needed a child. Yeah. And I, liked I needed it. to create yeah. a fucking <laughs> murder machine so we could get this revenge. Yeah. And, but she's not the only woman to whore herself out because the daughter who will eventually get some revenge and is one of the, uh, actually the very first, uh, the daughter, the first victim that Yuki gets to is she is making these bamboo wives just to yeah. keep her father who's a drunk so he doesn't know. And meanwhile, she's going out and pretending she's selling them and the money she's making is because she's a whore at night. Like, yeah. I was like, damn, that's a twist. Like, I have said this. One of my favorite um, films of all time is Old Boy and it's from Korea. And I will say this. I think Asian... Don't spoil it. I haven't nope, seen nope, it. I won't say a word. But I think oh, Asian cinema it's has the balls because of its storytelling. I feel like they... Maybe yeah. we, they have yes. a different sensibility than we do in America. There's... I mean, they just tell a story and they don't care if you... They don't care if it's going to bother you or you're going to be upset. They're almost like, yeah. fuck you. This is real life. This is the story we're telling. This is reality. Yeah. If you can't handle it, then get the fuck out of the theater. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that non-like coddling me like well it's it's a tough story to watch but yeah, yeah let's tiptoe and be careful yeah she's think. throwing this thing off the water and then the next thing you go it's like i'm like oh well then how's she making money how did i not see that coming <laughs> boom there she's just horning yeah. around yeah you're like what's going on like that takes a lot of work like i was thinking yeah. like that'd be something nice to like that's still like, make yeah, a basket like she's still yeah, yeah making the basket yes. yeah, she's, like, she's not, still taking but, the time so yeah. she's doing both and but the the way that they like fold the 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 children of the people that she's like you know trying to get revenge on into this and like yes. all this kind of tying together of like you know she's obviously doing the thing for her mother but then you know these other two you know that are kids of these terrible people they're yeah. both trying to help her or also trying to just live their own life and like so i like with she tried to help the one and yeah. was like here's my address come <laughs> and see me i almost felt like it was like the moment in kill bill where she goes if you still feel yeah, sorry exactly. about this this is where i'm at come yeah. Look me up. And, uh, yeah that's the way i read it it was basically like hey this is yeah. gonna be my exact location you're gonna wanna because they do that <laughs> like the yeah. and she, and i love the like look that she gives you whenever she's like well, what what do you mean? My I can't leave my dad behind, and she doesn't say anything else after that. She just looks at her and goes, "Yeah, okay." And then <laughs> yeah, proceeds to go yeah. murder her dad, like in the very next yeah. scene. Um, and then like yeah. kind of, and then the way the reporter is also, you know, a yeah. kid of one of them, but then he ends up, you know, playing a big role to like try to help her. 
fulfill her destiny. So it's like kind of uh, interesting that, you know, I know that that's kind of what people want to see if if we did get another Kill Bill installment to would be to like see Vernita's daughter kind of maybe come back around and, you know, it would kind of be a, a full circle moment of connecting it back to the, the influence of this movie. And it's interesting that she doesn't say that the boyfriend or whatever, the reporter doesn't say like, like, oh, but that's my dad. You can't, he right away says, oh, I know he's bad. Like, let's go get him. Where in an American movie, it'd be like, that's my dad. I don't know. And you'd have to see him do something. Now, as you're talking about the death of the guy, he deserved an award. I rewatched it and he is having to pretend he's dead while that freaking beach is getting bombarded by high tide. I like was he is that. I don't I mean he's I'm like he's like, he's getting water water. I'm like I'm like this motherfucker might actually be dead. Like I was waiting at the end of the credits <laughs> to see maybe like in memory of like this dude that, is yeah, getting I, I pounded like, like, by man, getting, I was like getting stabbed and drowned at the same <laughs> time is like that's a that's a pretty awful death to to go out on. I was like they had to have him like put his tongue something some way to he stop had the water off. from getting in his throat or something but yeah it was well some of these deaths that you see in these movies i think it happened in this one or it happened in one of them where the eyes are just staring straight ahead and i'm like i'd be blinking yeah. i couldn't do that like whatever i'm curious between you know like obviously it's you're kind of you you want yuki to like get the revenge throughout this movie because like you know these are terrible people but at the same time it's like do you guys like feel that sense of like not wanting her to because like hey like you could like you know like you know you ultimately want her to like kind of reject this path and like that that very first kill i think sets up like makes it the hardest because it's like we see that like oh he's just a he's a fucking drunk piece of shit like he's already kind of like living a just shitty life like that's probably worse than him dying anyways but he also has a you know very sweet daughter but like of her still being like nope like he's still gotta go because revenge he's on the list he's gotta go so like uh, I'm curious how you guys feel about that. I think it's interesting because I think what happens is when you watch it the second time, you realize that this woman is thrown into this life. The first time you're like, revenge, you know what I mean? You want to see all the cool yeah, kills. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, I want to see what made Tarantino like this film. And then you watch it the second yeah. time and you start going, Jesus Christ, like this girl's had zero. I mean, this is it. She was born. This was her This was her lot in life the minute she came out of the womb. Yeah. Whether she wanted it or not, yeah, she had no choice. Trained. But you also yeah. get to, I think, and again, this is 1973, so I, I want to put that in perspective as well we're at 50 years now so it's 20 years since yeah. kill bill one 50 years since this movie came out but it does yeah. highlight the difference in the writing if whatever people want to say tarantino can take some images but it's how do you put those images together and stitch them together where it makes a story feel like a story and it's his writing and the difference being I don't think we have enough of a emotional connection to Yuki. Tarantino would have set up a connection. We got a connection to the bride because we knew what had happened to her. She was pregnant. She was murdered. She lost her baby. We saw what that was like. We're like, holy shit. And that's why I miss about not having it, ever having it as one film, is when she makes that corner, that reveal will be so much yeah. more powerful if it's the first thing you, it's the first time you know she's alive instead of giving the cliffhanger. So I think yeah. the difference being is that we just don't have the connection with Yuki, even though we do get some backstory. We just don't have that connection of revenge and feeling for Yuki to have to do this for her mother because we just don't get enough of, even though we get the backstory, we just, we didn't give a fuck. Like, I mean, I'll honestly, I'm like, right, I didn't right. really care. You know, her dad, her, mean, her stepdad, whoever I, he would have been, he got so, murdered. So you could even yeah. that Tarantino basically wrote 
Kill Bill to, for the bride to be like, if Yuki's mom got to have her revenge, like yes. that's what he yeah. wanted. So yes. that's the movie yeah. he made. Essentially, yes. Well, and also we got, we, yeah. you know, we felt more connected to the character as opposed to like, look, when you sit down and watch uh, this, Lady Snowball, it looks so amazing, especially for '73 Japanese film. I mean, you're thinking it's going up against like Kurosawa, like you know, that's the bar to which it's got to reach, yeah. and it easily reaches that, and it's so well done, and you've got a female lead, and you were all on board, but the one thing it's missing that even a Kurosawa film has is we just aren't connected enough to Yuki to feel one way or the yeah. other for her to feel, you know, to feel bad. And like, as you, like I said, as you start watching it more, you start to realize, oh shit, like she had no choice. And then you as the viewer start to feel it, but you don't feel it the first time through. You're just like, fuck yeah, revenge. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it could be where, I don't know. I sometimes I, here's the thing. Uh, I cry at ET. I'll tell you guys that. Saw that in the theater years ago. As did 20 I. years we were after young. that, it was 20 year re-release. <laughs> I cried, and that's where I noticed the power of filmmaking was E.T.'s dead. You've seen E.T., right? Yes. <laughs> seen, yes, I've seen E.T. I know. I just spoiled it. Um, <laughs> E.T.'s dead alert. in the freezer, and he goes to say goodbye to him. He says, I'll let you say goodbye. <clears throat> he opens the freezer. He's saying goodbye. When he's closing the freezer and turning away, the freezer lights up. Elliot doesn't see that. He turns away and leaves, and I'm crying my eyes out as a you know 11 year old in 82 and then when he walks over he sees a flower blooming and now all of a sudden i'm like he's alive i think he's alive because he brings flowers to life elliot turns around goes over to the box opens it up unzips it the first thing elliot says et phone home and now you're crying again but you're happy and you're laughing and you went on this roller coaster it's like holy shit and what's funny i'm getting to a point trust me <laughs> is that my wife will be like you cry at a fucking rubber alien that doesn't exist that died and you cried and i'm like yeah honey it's fucking it's powerful and she's like whatever and so if i ever get into these movies she's like oh my god like how but if somebody kills a dog in a movie she's like fucking they killed a dog she John Wicks and it. she's crying <laughs> and i'm like i'm like it's a fake dog honey they didn't really kill it but the thing with some these revenge movies, you just want the revenge to happen as a movie. And then kind of sometimes, like Jackie Brown, maybe not this movie, but other movies, you get older and you're like, or like, I'm not a father, but if I became a father, I'd be like, oh shit, like my daughter, like I'm leaving my daughter, like they're going to kill me and I'm begging for my life, you know, then it's going to hit you. But for me, I'm just like, this is a great movie, like Kill Bill, mark off the list and go through it all. At the end, you're hoping that when she kills the last person, she can get with the reporter and they can be happy and they can live a life and they can, you know, smooch and be on the rowboat in the water and be happy, but that doesn't happen. And then you're like, oh man, that sucks. Like she just made to kill and then she died. Like what the fuck? Well, you know. My last two things before we jump into the influences. One of my favorite things, this comes from the being a Kung Fu theater fan. And I think uh, Phil mm -hmm. was talking about when the 80s, like Kung Fu oh, theater yeah. was on. When cable first yeah. came out, they had to fill oh, time yeah. in the afternoons. And the cheapest thing they could buy were Kung Fu films. And you would watch it. And fucking fantastic. Which is, again, a thing where, <laughs> I mean, that's why Pai Mei, when Pai Mei comes on screen, it's like, yeah. this is everything I remember. But better. Yeah. I always love when they announce. And again, this is probably just in the dubbing. But they always announce the mm -hmm. technique or weapon they're going to use. So when she throws the sand bomb, the guy goes, sand bomb. I laugh my ass <laughs> off. It's like, who? Yeah. It'd be like, you're like going to war and something like, oh, grenade. You know, just calling out yeah. what's coming in. Exactly. Get down. Yeah. Oh, it's just, I love that. And then this is, I did not know this was going to be a reoccurring theme. But apparently mm -hmm. the old Mission Impossible false face trick happens twice in our films. We get one in this movie and that, we yep. get one yep. in the other. And I was watching The Doll Squad the other night. I go, my. 
motherfucker. And they're both made, I think, in 73. I was like, holy shit, we yeah. get a Mission Impossible. One does it better than the other, I will admit. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The one in this film's a lot better. Um, twist. Yeah, yeah. I was like, God damn, how, what are the chances I picked two films? I have no clue. They're both going to do this Mission Impossible <laughs> false face trick. That's one that surprised me, too, because I had seen it before, but I forgot about that. And I was like, wow, she killed that guy pretty quick. I thought it'd be an end battle real big battle and i'm like oh she killed him pretty quick i guess it's been an hour and a half and yeah. we're done and then all of a sudden she pulls the you know sees his beard and everything and you're like oh shit and i'm surprised again even though i've seen it already i'm like oh shit and now it's time to present the evidence all right let's get into the influences and the very first one out the gate number is the plot of Lady Snowblood. Clearly, Tarantino flips this basic premise of Lady Snowblood on its head. And instead of a child seeking revenge for the death of her mother in Kill Bill, it's a mother seeking revenge for the death of what we th- she thinks is the death of her child, which yeah. I know this is the Trish Tarantino. I was I'm a huge fan. And I'm not fucking bending down and taking his dick in my mouth right now. But there is something more powerful, maybe because I'm a parent. But I think any parent would feel this way, or even a child. The parent would rather die than the child die. And when you think that mm-hmm. you have a child and you've been carrying it, and I can only imagine mm-hmm. what it's like for females to carry a child. No idea what that is like. And to have carried it, and then, you know, you go into a coma for four months, for four years, you wake up yeah. with some special power to be able to read your palm. I still haven't figured that one out yet. I'm waiting to see the reference yeah. for that, where she's able to look at her palm and know exactly how much time has passed. I looked at my palm and yeah. I don't see 47 years passed, but I don't know. Apparently she knows yeah. four. But to wake up and then not have the child, there's the difference. Yeah. There's the emotional tie we are missing from Snowblood in this film. Yeah. So whatever anyone wants to say, steal since that. Yeah, okay, whatever. But he is able to write and make the through lines more powerful and it's that when she wakes up and we realize the child's gone yeah. at that point you're like fuck yeah, yeah I want yeah. everyone to die as opposed to being like oh this is a revenge film I want to yeah. see the revenge so your feelings on the uh, the one of many influences we're going to go through yeah I mean it, it's interesting because in the in the intro for or in Lady Snowblood like she they kind of imply that like you know by the way that like the birth was happening it was like they were like, it's either we can save one or the other, essentially. And she was just like, no, like, do what you got to do and let me die. Like, I know you guys will take care of her. So she, like, makes a conscious choice to be like, no, I want, you know, my kid, even though she is still doing it for this purpose, um, you know, to kind of not have her. And it's, if I'm doing one-to-one, you know, this or Kill Bill Volume 1, I'm going to take this one. But where it succeeds, though, is, like, if you take Volume 1, Volume 2 together, these obviously, like, take, you know, what, you know, the kind of you know, the the unexplored angles of this one and kind of fills in those gaps, like you said, with a little bit more emotional uh, attachment to Yuki. It's like, because again, like, it's like, I kind of get further, you get further away from Yuki as the movie goes along. Yeah, I agree. Because at first you, like, you do see her as you're just like, oh, this is kind of sucks. Like this baby's about to be raised in a prison and then finally makes it out of the prison, but then uh, goes to go train with this uh, Kung Fu master as a child. Like, imagine if uh, the bride would have met Pai Mei as a kid. Oh, my goodness, she would have been yeah. next level. <laughs> but, like, but again, so it's like as the movie goes along, you get, like, further away from her rather than, like, kind of growing any attachment to her, which, you know, I think still succeeds on its own as well, you know, that, you know, you know obviously not every protagonist you have to have that emotional attachment to still, you know, feel the power of the narrative. Well, exactly. There's two things here. One is you talked about Titanic. So my friends who are parents, they cried at when they're putting the kids to bed. They know that they're going to die. My friends who are parents are like, that's the worst thing. Like they're putting the kids to bed. The kids have no idea. But the other thing is, it's interesting where if you go, 
Well, flush out the mother of Yuki. Flush some of that out. Then you got a bigger movie and it doesn't roll like it does. And it's just kind of clunky. And the other thing, the big thing about writing is... Like, I'm a writer, but I could never put my mind around how to twist something that I like into something totally different. Like, Quentin can do that in a way of just the second nature or whatever, and he's been writing since he was little, and that's what happens. And, you know, so, yeah, it's it's amazing. Our next one. Number two. Elements of the main character, Yuki, a.k.a. Lady Snowblood, were used in the creation of both the bride and Oren's characters. Obviously, we get our strong female-centered character that is the bride and the ability to kill people. However, I don't think, obviously, the bride has a lot more of personality. Just, mm. to, I mean, Yuki is, uh, like you said, she is the T-1000. She is kill. Like, it's just kill. Like, she has her moments, but she doesn't even let her guard down. Like, I think Ryu, the dude, is the, the writer. I think he may be trying to get in her kimono, and she is like, I got no time for you, bud. You may help me. I got no yeah. time for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, yeah. I don't have time for sex. I don't have time for nothing. We are going to kill yeah. everybody in my path to, to like, uh, you know, fulfill this vendetta of my mother's. So, that's where I think she, uh, where some of Oren comes in, and obviously Oren has a little mm -hmm. more personality, but you can feel that she's a lot more like Oren, where, I mean, they both lose people. And Oren's business. Business-like, yes. Purpose. Yes, very yeah. business-like. Even though, I mean, obviously yeah. played by Lucy Liu, she's phenomenal. She has a lot more personality, you know, and we, we love her more, you know, of all the ones that she has to kill. And I will say this about you too. The first half of Kill Bill Volume One, we don't necessarily hate these ladies as much. Up until like L Driver, you don't you feel bad for the other three, right? Like you just feel like the other three were yeah. forced. Like L, you're like this cunt needs yeah. to fucking die. You know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah. of all of them, mm -hmm. you're like hats off to uh, Daryl Hannah. She, I thought she was great. My my buddy Ryan Rebelkin does not like her at all. Thinks she's very weak, but uh, he just hey, no, that's, that's fine. So he okay. he does not she's, like she's her. She's great. She's great. This this weird L L Driver controversy going on on this pod here. No, she, <laughs> she's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Take that, Ryan. Yeah, she's <laughs> good. Yeah, she's always great. You know, they we kind of see the influences in Oren and the bride for her, but then also uh, we also like kind of have like she is going after, it was a gang of like four and then uh, one of the ones that she goes after is like the one like female in the group that is uh, a Kono, which, you know, also, oh, yeah. uh, maybe that is also maybe an homage uh, to naming Oren um, that name, uh, possibly because she's like the one that uh, yeah. Yuki has to go after in the gang as well. Which that one disappointing thing about her character is I thought she hung herself. I thought she had the best like, fuck you, you're not getting revenge on me. Yeah. I'm taking inside thought... her hands. And then you find out that the other guy hung her to keep her because I wrote down uh, my first notes. Well, I my note it, was I like, "That's what it was." Too. Yeah, I put down uh, Okono hanging herself is a boss bitch move. She said, "Fuck you and your vengeance, Yuki." And then I wrote that down. And then like five, ten I minutes later, the too. father's like, "Oh, he hung." Her. I'm like, "God yeah. damn it! You ruined it for me, damn it!" I really liked the thought that she hung herself. I was surprised again because I forgot. But I was looking around like, "How did she get up there? Like, is there a banister? Is there something?" And then later, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I remember." Oh, yeah, that, I know. It's disappointing. Of her yes, her, of her cutting her in half and all that blood which is cool been like way cool and she also had her like her own uh, version of like kind of uh her like you know she had a little death squad as well yeah. kind of with Owen yeah. and yeah. crazy 88s and then oh, that's, that's uh, coming up we, this guy's jumping oh, the, yeah. he's jumping yeah. the, Damn it. No, that's right. i know i was almost <laughs> gonna do it with the other thing but yeah number three obviously the kimono outfits of the time period used in Lady Snowblood helped to inspire Oren's outfit that she wears during her fight with the bride. What I do appreciate is that even though 
We strongly wear the game of death Bruce Lee outfit for the bride. I like that we just stay with a simple white kimono. We didn't put any flowers or anything extra yeah. that some of hers are. Obviously, the white works perfectly, especially, you know, for the fight yeah. scene, I think. So I just really liked it. And it's like a, it's a reverse, too, right? Because normally the bad guys wear black. You know, and here's our villain, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of our villains, in all fucking white, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. and they both are very similar. Like, both the bride and Oren are very similar. They both have come and had some weird mm-hmm. things, which made me think on my drive home today, getting ready to do this, I thought, feels like Oren, of all the people involved, would not have been a part of what happened right, because yeah. she knows firsthand mm-hmm, what yeah. happened. So, it would be interesting to see the more, more of the story of Oren because clearly, as she's becoming this great hit person, something else changed. Yeah. Another moment happened where she forgot yeah. where she came from and just decided, I don't care anymore. You know, she went full, like, full Darth Vader. She went full dark side. And maybe it was, I don't remember. The only part I remember of that script reading is that, that when I read that script, is a treehouse. So, I don't remember what her, their story was together. I don't think it explained that, but how when she's a thousand green leaves, blue leaves, you find out that they're, they were best friends. And I think Bill might've said, I'll give you run of this area and you can just go for it. And that over tilted her friendship was like, you know, business. Okay, I'll do that. If you could have more with that, but that was something that you care talking about characters. You care about them when she's like, you didn't think I was just going to let you walk out of here. Did you? I kind of did. I was hoping like, yeah, she's like, no. And then you know, it's something else that I was thinking about. Just Kill Bill. That when she kills everybody, you're thinking, okay, phew, uh, good. You lean back, you're fine. And then more people come out. <laughs> you're like, the motorcycles. Yeah. Yeah. Was there 88 of them? Uh, I don't know. They just <laughs> called themselves the 88. Well, it plays credence to what you said, though, is it's a friendship thing. Of all the other fights that she has, it's Silly Rabbit. Tricks are for kids. They have said that together, right? In yeah. some point, fooling around, whatever. Maybe yeah. it's their favorite cereal. Vincent and Jules yes. thing when they kill somebody. Yep. Yeah. And, and then it's also when she makes fun of her. Little Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. That is not a rate. Like I, I know it can come yeah. across as you know, but, but that, it was that like, is a thing between friends. When you're with your yeah. friends, you say mm-hmm. heinous stuff to each other because you trust that person and you know what that person is saying. Even though they're they hate each other at that moment, it's still that moment where yeah. there's such a personal relationship, an intimate relationship with each other that it's the subtext. That's what Tarantino's good at, which is what Lady Snowball is missing a little bit. It's that subtext. It's yeah. that stuff thrown in. That if you see it, like it's that old saying, if you know, then you know. And it's that kind mm-hmm. of thing. If you can catch it, you can see that there is more to the death than, than what we're seeing. But I was thinking, I wonder if, I didn't think about it until just now, with that line of likes to play with samurai swords, I wonder if that's like when you have a friend who drinks too much and starts spouting <laughs> the truth, they call it truth yeah. from. And so she's been holding that in all this time of just like, you're my friend, you're cool, okay, bride, you're okay, Beatrix, you're fine. And now she's like, fucking bitch wants to appropriate my culture. Like, what the fuck? And then she says that. And maybe the bride's like, oh, okay, let's go. But it's also some jealousy between women because Vernita Green does it. Black Mamba. I should have motherfucking Black Mamba. Like, she's upset with the name because the bride is Bill's favorite. And then so probably he's always like, oh, no one's as good as swords as the bride. And meanwhile, 
But Ren's like, what yeah. the fuck are, what are you talking? Like, that is my heritage. Mm-hmm. Like, not good. Like, what are you talking about? I was born with the sword in my fucking hand. You know, I'm like, I am Lady Snowblood. That's the great thing. That's what, that's what makes me a fan is it's the subtext. It's the stuff that, as a real fan, when you sit there and you don't just watch it and go, oh, okay, that's it. You know, you really start to pick at it. You go, man, there's some good stuff. Well, and there's an interview. The other great thing that I love the dialogue when she's like, Bill said you were good with knives. Renata Green's like, bitch, I know he didn't say that. <laughs> Like, he wouldn't give up that information. <laughs> but it's the thing of, there's an interview with Quentin where he's talking about when he did Reservoir Dogs. Somebody's like, did you do your subtext work? And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, do your subtext work. And he goes, then I did it. And I was like, oh, white's the father of orange. It's a father-son thing. And it went to this deeper level. And now he's doing that with all of his movies. Like, oh, shit. Speaking of Lady Snowblood. Number four. The song, Shura Nohana that opens Lady Snowblood is also used in Volume 1 after The Bride Kills O'Ren. It also makes its play at the end of Lady Snowblood as well. But when you first watch Lady Snowblood and that the quick cold open happens and then it goes into you, you go, okay, now I see where mm-hmm. a majority yeah. of the end fight of, at House of Blue leads between O'Ren and, and The Bride come from you go, okay, this whole moment here, there's a lot here that Tarantino song was like, oh, who doesn't? Like if I'd never seen Kill Bill and I saw that, that opening part, you're like, it's just beautifully yeah. shot. The music mm-hmm. kicks in. Yeah. I can totally get where he was just like enamored with it and you know, you're sucked in. If you don't like that beginning part when you see the film, <laughs> yeah. you're just not a fan of cinema. Like it sucks you in. Who cares if you read subtitles? Yeah. Turn the subtitles off. Don't watch subtitles and just watch yeah. the film. Yeah, I mean again, it's like you can't have the title be Lady Snowblood if we're not gonna see blood on snow within the first five minutes. Yes. So it's like with that cold open, like the <laughs> yeah. way that it kicks in that way. Uh it looks amazing in a way that again is like very beautiful and like artistic. So you know um and it's like kind of the way that like you know when you watch a film and uh when you see something violent and it's like oh i don't like this but you get excited because of you know the way that it can be you know presented in a you know safe and beautiful way to like kind of portray this and yeah violence is storytelling exactly so it's like uh with snowblood like a a lot of the style is you know like everything even though the the blood and the violence is very excessive like they still don't you know they're like no we are still going to shoot this like it's a drama like it's you know with very you know beautiful shots and things like that and the the music feels very reflective of that too because it's uh the the music never uh goes like in a dark uh like direction at any point it's always very beautiful and floaty and yeah. and dreamlike it, it never goes into like um you know the typical score you would hear here yeah it doesn't try to do like jump like dun dun like any of that it's just and the other cool thing was you know when i first saw this you're like you're able to read the subtitles and you could read the dialogue the music and you're yes, like what she's oh, singing these yeah are the lyrics to the song where you listen to it before, you're like, this is a beautiful song. I wonder what it means. It's like some beautiful Mexican music that you hear, and you're like, I wonder what they're saying. They said something about love, but you get to read it, and you're like, this is really poignant for this yes. and poignant for Kill Bill. Like, it works in both ways. Amazing. Number five. Speaking of the opening scene, it's the snowy night scenes in the beginning of this film, because after this scene, we go to the prison where we see she's born, and we get the actual red snow coming down yeah. when she's born. But this is the setup. This is where Tarantino yeah. said, and even Oren says, you know, for last looks, you could do worse. And yeah. of all the end scenes in, of all of Kill Bill, yeah. it's the most beautiful final fight. I mean, when she walks out, and it's lightly snowing, and you're just like, wow. The little, the water. Yes, the little the water, water spigot. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Making that noise, like, dunk, dunk, dunk. 
like oh, it's so, so it's good. gorgeous it's gorgeous like you just had this yeah. unbelievable yeah. massacre which was amazing yeah and you're like well how do you top this and he's like well let's slow it down and let's do this almost dual style this is a let's breathe, yeah we're gonna do the samurai relax. version of a gunslinger duel and they're gonna yeah. cross swords like real it's like why bruce lee always had to fight someone who had the same skill as him at the end he would whoop yeah. the fuck out of the guys who were basically blue belts and that's what she did she dispatched yeah. them easily because that's what she is but then it's like now yeah. someone on the same level of her we have to have a boss level fight we got to have a great view yeah. and there's no better view yeah. in the rest of the movie than that view at that moment you're like man and then like you said the blood like her head's cut off and there's the first thing we see is the blood slash across the snow uh, that's and a literal the- that's literally snow blood like he yeah. literally saying yeah. hey <laughs> have you seen lady snow blood? it's like there's blood yeah. in the snow Don't like there it, it is yeah and the same thing with the the thing of i'm sure you guys know this but where she says like you won't last five minutes and exactly five minutes yes, is when four, her head yeah, gets just under five her, minutes. Top yep. of her head gets cut off. Yeah, it's like, oh, shit. Yes, it's amazing. But, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. It's so great. Number six. And as my man Devon said, the blood spurts that are big in Chambara films, but especially in this one, totally, oh, totally inspired him in these moments. And they are gratuitous, yeah. and they are brilliant, and... Anybody who's like, what the fuck? This is why. See Lady Snowblood, you'll get all the references for it. I wish horror movies sometimes would take more of a cue. You know, like sometimes like you get some good blood. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know it's a horror movie. We don't don't need realistic blood. If you're cutting something off with a chainsaw, I want to see gushes of blood smashing you in the face. Like even in the anime, Mm -hmm. they do it. Like when she kills Boston and pulls it out like and her silhouettes. There's more blood coming out of his body that's That's in the human body. And you're yeah. just like, absolutely. You're yeah. just like, fuck yeah, it, this is awesome. I'm all, I'm always for the gratuitous amounts. Like a 2013 Evil Dead does a, a pretty good job yes. of uh, getting in just uh, buckets and gowns. Like you said, like more than is like even in a body. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Sweeney Todd does a really good job of uh, kind of resembling some of this uh, effect as well. And they should because we're having fun in the theater. We know it's not real. So one thing about Star Wars I kind of am disappointed about is obviously the lightsaber cauterizes every wound. So when you chop something yeah. off, <laughs> there's no blood because it's cauterized. You're kind of yeah. like, damn it, I really want to see some yeah. fucking spurts yeah. come out. <laughs> like someone's got a faulty lightsaber. It's like, oh, it doesn't really burn. So it's a little less <laughs> yeah. hot. And, and you had mentioned how Tarantino like had to like censor his blood spurting in it with the black and white. Yeah. Uh, my, I had a, the question for you guys earlier. Uh, would you guys have taken Kill Bill entirely black and white because i don't know for me it, hmm. it would all style a little bit with a kind of uh because the snow blood itself was also inspired from a manga which yeah. is completely which is completely black, black and white, and white. Yeah. maybe the second one because that has like that black and white scene for a second but maybe that would more play black and white but then you wouldn't have the beautiful color and the her the yellow, yellow leather jacket as yeah. she's coming across the desert and going to the diner number seven when Oren slowly unsheathes her sword at the beginning of the showdown, this is a straight homage to a very similar shot of when Lady Snowblood is practicing her sword plate at the Bamboo Forest. Number eight. Now, another one that is big is, and funny thing is, is I watched this for the second time, and the first time through, didn't even fucking catch it. Lady Snowblood tells its story in chapters. 
which clearly inspired Tarantino to do the same in Kill Bill, and it's the first film he does it in. He's only done it in a couple other films. Obviously, he did it in Kill Bill. He does it in Inglorious Bastards, and the other one he did it in is he does it in The Hateful Eight. So he does only does it in three, but The Kill Bill is the first one. This is definitely where he got it, and if he's going to pay homage yeah. to a movie, he starts it here, and then as we start to learn about him, he likes it from there, but he also likes the the writing aspect of writing like a like a novel a, a approach. Yeah. It's a two-parter, right? Like So he saw it this way, and it's like, ooh, cool, and then it starts to inform the way he starts to write too he starts to break things up into chapters and it just works better that way so but this is i mean clear clear as day so you see chapter one and yeah. go there's yeah. the entrance to it right there i'm always a fan of it too just because like you know they kind of have like the the cryptic titles of the chapter two yeah. to kind of you know influence a little bit of like what you're gonna see and then like you kind of think you know and then like the the chapter name doesn't really make sense until you get to the end of it yeah. and like i feel like um you know this movie and tarantino do a great job of that we still got more to go. <laughs> it took me two and a half hours to watch an hour and a half movie because I had to keep pausing and oh, typing wow. notes. Like, here's the new reference. Here's the next reference. <laughs> like, I'm going to have to record. I think there's like 14 of them. I yeah. only recorded up to number 10. I didn't think we'd get past. I'm like, I'm going to have to record more audio to get all the numbers in for this yeah. fucking episode because there's so many. Number nine. Now, the death blow that is delivered to the school teacher is the same type of blow used to kill Oren's mother in the anime flashback in Volume 1. It's that stab overhead through yeah. the chest. At first, I thought it was the dab, but then I remembered he gets it through the fucking head. My favorite, like I said, on the anime sequence is the blood on the wall when she kills the guy. But before that, when she's in the place where mom and dad, where her eyes roll over to look at the door yes. when they're coming in. Yes. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> like, so good. If they don't do a Volume 3... I would die to see them do it yeah. anime style. Just have them write it and do anime style. I would that would be absolutely amazing because the anime for this was yeah. you don't think it's gonna work, but it fucking yeah. works. Like that's balls. That's balls to go. You know what? Yeah. And we're gonna get to why he does it, but you go, uh, we're gonna tell this part in yeah. anime, and you're like, okay. Yeah. And very few films can do that. Can jump from live action to tell a backstory in fucking anime, and you're like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> Number ten. The reason is in a flashback sequence, and because I even read up on this, is they did not have a lot of money. So they had to shoot still shots. So like when they're telling the story of the wars in China, they're using old paintings that told the story as they're doing the voiceover for it. It was just easier to shoot, save them money. And then they used yeah. pages from the Magna to actually tell mm -hmm. some of the backstory. And when you see it, I mean, the minute you see it in the story, you go... Oh, now I know why he went with it. Now, it's completely different because we're using the actual inspired material that this movie's yeah, made yeah. from. So they're just using the MAGA, yeah. and you're like, oh, it works perfectly. Because, I mean, they've already written all the scenes, which works perfectly. Like, saved all kinds of money. But then you think yeah. about, like, oh, shit, that's why Tarantino decided to do it. And he took a ballsy move because putting yeah. the, Magna, the MAGA in it, and people have read the MAGA, probably didn't come across, even in 1973, as that jolting to the fans of that series who would have probably been the first people to yeah. go see it. Mm -hmm. But to go see Kill Bill and not know these references and then just say, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to throw anime in here. And for it to work, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Probably wasn't out of place, like, yeah, for people watching more of these style movies because they kind of, you know, did this style a little bit more. And the and the paintings are absolutely gorgeous too. I really love them. And and uh, and I think the anime in in Kill Bill One, like it the anime like section itself, it looks really great and I like very much to enjoy it. Again, it, for me it kind of like throws off like the structure, like just a little bit of it, but at the same time, because it's like the only thing that we've seen of him do. So like you said, like it's it, it hits a little differently than watching this movie into way uh that it's like 
intercut in. I also think it helps be able to tell the story of Oren's thing because otherwise you got to get a young actress to pretend. Yeah. She, you yeah. know and what I mean? Really like, don't want that. Either, no, and the anime know, helps that. it, right? Because the anime, mm-hmm. you get the, you can do a little bit yeah. more of the anime. He can slide things by the censors, and like even she says, luckily for her, he was a boss Tanaka's a pedophile, and you're kind of like, never has that sentence been said, but yet you go, no, I guess it is. Otherwise, she how you know what I mean? You're kind of like, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. that is true. Like how else yeah. she got revenge? Yeah. You know, and, you're kind of like, oh, and we don't want to yeah. see that no. because there's. Because no. there is a scene in this where, like, we have, like, little girl Yuki, like, throw her robe off. And I was well, just, like, oh, kind of cut off. Yeah, you, I, that yeah. was stunning. I yeah. was, like, I didn't yeah. put down this note. I was, like, yeah, I'm but, just going to walk past it. Yeah. But that fight was cool where she she gives him that look. And you're oh, yeah. just, like, It's a, it's oh, a great man. scene. Like, but it's just yes. also, like, it, that's just funny. It's, like, for O-Ren, we wouldn't have done that for, like, in right. movies. Yeah, exactly. Just, like, let's just do anime. <laughs> Number 11. One of your favorite moments, which is in the second volume, but this is, comes from the second volume, but the low angle shot of the four covers that Lady Soma is sneaking that her mom is looking up at after the school teacher has been killed is damn near the same shot that QUT yeah. uses when Bud, Oren, L, and Vernita are looking down at B after nearly killing her. <laughs> and that's the moment that they push in on, they go to that four shot. It's a little tighter. The shot in this one, they're a little more separated. There's like two and two on each side. And there's more of a, kind of like a hole in the middle yeah. of, the, of the frame. And in the QT version, he then slowly tracks in on Oren's face and that's when we go to the Oren you know her backstory and everything so and the cool thing is it's the reverse right because in Lady Snowblood it's three dudes one lady and in Tarantino's yeah. it's three yeah. ladies and one dude like all right, if you want to say he steals things, fine, whatever. But to me, it's just a beautiful way to do an homage yeah. and just like being like, hey, look, here's my version of it. I mean, I only I only wish he didn't homage this a little bit more because I loved uh, not I mean, obviously don't love uh, this like, you know, you know, killer group or whatever in this movie. But their introduction of, uh, you know, each of them like taking a stab in that freeze framing. With yeah. Them. Now, I only wish we could have got that with the deadly viper assassins, yeah. like have them all like kind of like because we never see them uh, as a as a squad in action uh like together uh in those movies so it would have been funny to even push the homage even further with the, those uh freeze frame introductions would have been yeah cool to have another chapter that was just them or what they did before they met the school teacher like well there was there was supposed to be an anime and if you know if you go back through some of the stuff i've done there was supposed to be an anime right after this came out that was going to do the backstory of how the bride <clears throat> met Bill and how all of this kind of transpired, like her her days as a part of the divas, and we would see more of the bride and Bill and that whole thing. But again, what Tarantino does best also is Blue Ball Central. This is the most blue balled fandom ever. If you hear things from Star Wars, yeah. any other, usually they kind of pay off, or more than not. If you're a fan of Tarantino, yeah. you have been told so many things are going to happen, and then they don't happen. Although he does pay it off. They, normally, when he does give you something, it yeah. pays off. But there's a lot of blue balls to be a Tarantino fan because you've been told 2006, we're yeah. going to get the whole bloody affair. And here we are, 17 yeah. years later, and <laughs> guess what has it come out? Yeah. The whole bloody affair. And he has it. That motherfucker has it, and yeah. he shows it at his theater, yeah. but he won't put it it out son of a bitch but he gives us the 52 hour version on netflix of the hateful eight <laughs> broken up into four parts but he won't give us this that <laughs> son of a bitch number 12 dakai yuki's master his harsh training was definitely an inspiration for the type of harsh training that mr pi may would employ on beatrix number 13 and then the voiceover inspire QT to have a Tori Hanzo deliver one in volume one as well. Dakai does, he kind of does a bit of a backstory there. You could tell right away that he's a mixture of the two people we're going to see, but the 
obviously anyone who knows anything, Pai Mei is from an entire different series of kung fu films. Yeah. And Hattori Hanzo actually played by the late great Sonny Chiba. Yeah, Sonny Chiba. He played Hattori Hanzo in other versions in a Japanese a serial of shows. So it, he just took two <laughs> things he knew and brought them in. But this guy obviously was, you know, they tried, he breaks, he took the Kai, the master, split him in two. And yeah. one part of him is going to become some of what Pai Mei does for training. But Pai Mei already has his own backstory lore. And then the voiceover part that he does, we're going to get that to Hattori Hanzo because let's be honest. I mean, I listen to Sunny Chiba read the yeah. phone book in Japanese. It just, <laughs> yeah, just exactly. commands it. Yeah. All right, we are almost done with some of these. <laughs> Number 14. Young O'Ren, when she does kill Boston Aka, says, Do I look familiar? Which is the dialogue very similar that Yuki uses when she kills Bonzo in the beginning mm-hmm. of the oh. film. Not the exact same, but it's very, I mean, it's very similar. She, I mean, right. she yeah. asks if she recognizes yeah. if, if her face resembles someone yes. that she's seen before. Yes. So a very, very similar, similar moment. Number 15. As we spoke earlier, the courtyard fight scene was a building block for QT's epic showdown at the House of Blue Leaves where there's this extra, you know, the police force, the corrupt police force that's now under the uh, rule, apparently, of uh, Mrs. Okono and then obviously under the last guy who was probably the the bill type. But uh, that showdown that they have inside where we get the sand bomb moment, obviously, it's not nearly as epic. Like, she literally cuts through them very, yeah. very quickly. And you could tell it's a low-budget film. They didn't have a lot of money because, you know, we don't yeah. have time to have the kind of scene that Tarantino puts on where there's blood, every, you know, there's a thousand body parts there was blood everywhere. Yeah. It's great. It takes him six weeks to shoot the fucking thing. So that was definitely a building block. He saw this. Oh, that's pretty cool. And obviously, not just that, but regardless of what people think about how he feels about Bruce Lee, he clearly loves Bruce Lee. And he basically made the bride look like Bruce Lee. But what if Bruce Lee was a samurai sword-carrying member of life? And what would it look like in his many fights where he fights one guy with, like, yeah. nunchucks? And he's, like, fighting 50 of them. What would it look like if he was fighting a bunch of people with swords? And he's the top swordsman. And that's basically also what we get because if you don't see the reference there mm. you don't know Bruce Lee <laughs> I mean and I, I like what the, the the scene too is like he kind of saw this and goes yeah what if uh, I took this masquerade party but everyone that's in masks is also in on the fight because like that's kind of the difference <laughs> yes. here is like with Snowblood like you know this dance is just kind of happening <laughs> while she's also like trying to like fight through these people so he was just like no what if just everyone dancing was killing instead or what if everyone dancing runs the fuck yeah. out and more people run the fuck in, like Charlie Brown. <laughs> Charlie Brown's on. He's just out. He's gone. Number 16. And lastly, I can't necessarily prove this, but the unique out-of-place music used in Lady Snowblood, for instance, the jazz instrumental when Ryu was writing, the funk track when the cops are looking for Ryu, and then the spaghetti western-type music after Yuki kills her last victim, I feel definitely helped to inspire QT to do the same type of thing in both volumes of Kill Bill, and maybe even something that will happen in the next movie we're going to get into, which will be a lot shorter talk, but the next movie we're going to get into, I feel this type of out-of-place change, like for a samurai movie that's supposed to be set in the late 1800s, for it to have this type of modern day music thrown into it is definitely something different. Uh, Kurosawa doesn't do this. And it's yeah. like kind of revolutionary for the time, especially a Japanese film not leaning heavily on music of its time to throw in kind of funkier music that is happening in and around the world. Yeah, not just the score. Because yeah. there's a lot of in the fight scenes. Even when O-Ren takes off her shoes and we get that flamenco kind of yeah. song, you know, that yeah. don't let me be misunderstood. Yeah. It's like that's completely not it, a song you would think is going to happen at, in a showdown. And it totally works. And now it's time to read the verdict. Gentlemen, your feelings on none of the stuff we just talked about for Lady Snowblood. Was QT inspired by this film, or do you think he ripped it off blatantly? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think he was definitely heavy 
he, he was heavily inspired, but he, I wouldn't say it was Rip Off because, again, he takes these inspirations and he, you know, either flips it in a certain way, whether it being the mother getting the revenge instead of the child or, you know, something like that. Uh, he, he takes many elements and, and does this uh, to where it's like, no, it, like he's, you know, it's, it's the same way as like, you know, the way that someone else uses different, uh, you know, mechanical parts made by somebody else, but then you make a machine. That's still your thing, you know? So it's like he, yeah. he takes these elements in, in a way and it's not like he's just going you know, shot for shot, you know, back to back doing it. But then he's also taking only the things that he likes and then, you know, okay, I'm going to kind of surround everything else around. Cause like, yeah, there are, there are some pretty like heavy influences here, but at the same time, uh, he, he took kind of what he wanted. And then like, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm going to watch um the bride wears black at some point because that kind of preceded this and lady Snowblood. So, so I kind of want to see where he took inspiration there too. So like, you know, he, he takes various pieces, but he, he doesn't rip off. Like I, I, I never, uh, that phrase never comes to mind when I think of Tarantino. Mr. Duke. It's crazy because I always think like when you're sitting down, you're going to do like a Kung Fu movie, like Kill Bill that you're going to go, okay, I like this movie. I like this movie. And you're going to try to pick and choose everything out of Enter the Dragon that you might like or everything out of the Flying Guillotine, stuff like that. But he picked so much out of this one that he either loves it so much that he was like, I love these scenes. But also, like I said, if you were to ask all three of us, how would you change this into something else? We'd go, I don't, I don't know. Let's just do that shot. That was a cool shot. Let's do that. You know, And you do the exact same thing where he's like, I'm going to do the shot, but I'm going to have a big uh, ceiling, a wooden ceiling with the beams, and you're going to see them above her or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, I, I, I'm i like you, and I never think, like, that he steals. I'm like, no, this is uh, amazing that you can do Brian De Palma, but in your own way, but also pay respect to Brian De Palma in the hospital scene or whatever in Kill Bill. But, yeah, but there was a lot more than you look at Reservoir Dogs and you go, okay, city on fire and maybe this, maybe the killing. But then this is like there's a lot where you could go down a list. But it's respect to where, like I said, I would I would see him being like, guys, you haven't seen it? Here, watch my DVD. Go watch it, you know. In the case of Lady Snowblood, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. We're now going to jump into the second glorious film, Doll Squad. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1973 Z-grade action film, The Doll Squad. Written by Jack Riches, Pam Eddy, and Ted V. Michaels. Directed by Ted V. Michaels. Starring Michael Ansara, Francine York, Anthony Isley, John Carter, and Tura Santana. With an IMDb rating of 4.3 and no critic score, and a 28 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. When a diabolical maniac threatens mass destruction, an elite band of sexy assassins may be our only hope. Now taking the witness stand, The Doll Squad. This movie, you know what? I thought I was going to hate this thing. I was like, oh, when it starts, I'm like, oh no. I'm like, these guys are going to fucking hate me for this. 
But I actually started to actually enjoy it. And I could see where young Tarantino did as a kid. And for those who don't know, is the Doll Squad is a very simple premise, apparently. In 1973, there is a a space program that a senator and the government are big on. And some nefarious bad guy decides he's going to blow up a rocket just to show that he can. (laughs) And who... Are we going to get to solve this crime? Well, we went to the CIA computers, and they pulled up the Doll Squad. The only people available were these somewhat sexy, I guess. I I don't want to sound like a sex, but I guess when you think the Doll Squad, you think this is going to be... Like, you know, like it's going to be femme fatale heavy. And you're kind of like, I mean, they're attractive women, but you're kind of like, you almost appreciate the fact that you're like, you know what? Actually, they kind of actually seem more like the kind of people you would actually say if they were the team well, of assassins. I was going to say no offense to us, but if we were making a movie and you said, get some of your hot friends, this is who we bring. We may not have the hottest yeah, friends. Yeah, who are movie yeah, you're stars. right. Yeah. You're like, well, here's this yeah. girl. Is she going to take off her clothes? No, no. Is she going to wear her clothes? Like, and that's what you yeah. get. And I think this was such a cheap. It's still a good movie, everybody listening, but it's so Oh, I don't cheap. know that it was cheap. Apparently, the guy, now the guy who directs this, Mr. Yeah, Ted. Ted V. Michaels, which I thought was interesting that he used the middle initial, yeah. like, and not to be confused <laughs> with Ted C. Yeah, Michaels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't get confused yeah. with him. It's yeah. Ted V. Michaels. But he says he spent over $256,000 of his own money Isn't on the that film. crazy sometimes when you hear it this is. old money where you're like, really? Like, El Mariachi yeah, was made for 7000 and... You know, looks a hell of a, a lot better. Well, you know what? He probably got he got real guns right. that were blank firing, yeah. and that's where I think his yeah. money came yeah. from. Mm-hmm. I'm a child of the '80s, born in the mid of the '70s. I remember shows like this movie. The more I watch it, the reason I enjoyed it, I was very reminiscent of watching shows back in syndication when cable first came out of the 70s shows that my parents grew up on and that I remember watching. So this was not a surprise to find out that Mr. Aaron Spelling, after seeing this film on its opening night premiere, was inspired to create the late 70s TV show Charlie's Angels. And once I found out about that information and watched this show or this movie, I was like, I see it. Like, I was like, I don't know that I picked the right film. I'm thinking we're doing this. We're going to talk about Charlie's Angels. This is the premise for like the Charlie's Angels, which then will become like the A team. Like, it's basically A team and Charlie's Angels are very similar. It just happens to be escaped, you know, U.S. soldiers. But even the look of this film feels like a seven. Like, I almost feel like we're watching a very long premiere, a two part episode of the first season of this show called The Doll Squad. It felt more like a TV show. Mm-hmm. Than it ever did a film. Yeah. Your feelings, gentlemen. I mean, it feels like Charlie's Angels like kind of took the idea of like what again, like what you assume Doll Squad would be. Like you hear that name and it's like, oh, a team of like super sexy spy gals or whatever. And that's what we get for Charlie's Angels versus this. It is <laughs> yes. kind of more the and not to, like all these gals are beautiful, right? But right. they're but like I mean, yeah. And there's the one that you know when she's not doing doll squad stuff, she's a stripper. But besides <laughs> from her, the rest of them are all like the regular gals that just do their own you know regular everyday jobs. And then you know whenever they have a mission, they like kind of come out. And then they try to even push even farther. I guess apparently this was also re-released under Seduce and Destroy. So then they were trying to even push the the sexiness and like that even further and like. Like, you know, there's only like one or two scenes where like the women are kind of like using their feminine wiles against these men. You know, typically it's like, no, they're going around just shooting and 
people and blowing shit up, like yeah. doing yeah. spy shit, you know, like, so um, it, it's not exactly like what you would insinuate they're doing. Well, considering the plot of the film, I was surprised it was PG and not R and that it didn't lean into any exploitation. Like, yeah. I actually feel, again, I appreciate what they did with it. So I do appreciate that aspect. But if you're going to make a kind of film called The Doll Squad yeah. and the premise is five ladies have to, you would have thought yeah. that Mr. Michaels there, Ted V, for those who yeah. are friends, would have leaned into exploitation. We would have had, I'm not saying we had like TNA, but you would have thought it'd be. in the pool. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, either that or the, like the girls would have fought in yeah, their bikinis. Yeah, you know, yeah. there would have been some kind of real yeah. sexy attire, like like what the Charlie's Angels do. Like there would have been more of that TNA feel yeah, to yeah. it. Necessarily have to be like a full on, you know, exploitation. Yeah, yeah. But you would have felt no. that would where we're going sexy. with this film. Yeah, yeah you yeah. would have. I mean, again, yeah, it, it didn't take me out of the film, but now I see why I was a PG. It's interesting because yeah, it was like middle of the road. Um, I was kind of like you. I think at first I'm like oh, wow, this is like one of the cheapest movies that I've seen. Like I've seen on our Quentin Tarantino thing, we're watching like some, like we watch a movie called Wonder Women and that was like, you know, had Sid Hagen and stuff. <laughs> but this one, I was like, oh, wow, this is like independent filmmaking. And like they're yes. in that room and for a second, you're like, I think behind that curtain is a window. And then you're like, no, that's just the curtains drawn to make it look like it's a window, but there's no window. They're in a studio or in a house. <laughs> but with that explosion, that first explosion is crazy. <laughs> you you know you're in for it when you yeah, see the first you explosion. See the explosion, you're like, I'm like, I know the rock is going like, to explode, this, and I'm thinking, well, oh, they must have got like old footage. Yeah, it was taking a while, and I'm like, is this going to be? At first, I was like, are they going to show the one that exploded before it took off, like the regular rocket had nobody on it? Yeah. Thing. And then it didn't, it blew up and you're like, okay. And my wife was just like, well, I'm going to bed, like whatever. <laughs> and. And I'm like, because I watch some weird shit. And like I said, she's like, don't put on the Japanese shit. She woke up once I was watching some uh, Ichi the Killer. She was like, what? But like you, uh, Scott, the more it played, I was like, oh, now they're getting a team. And then you think the team is together. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, they're going to fight. And then boom, boom. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> but what I really yes. love for this being... A cheap movie, the best special effect that I liked in this movie was that girl, she's in the yard, she's fighting them, the guy pulls a gun out, shoots her, and somehow they <laughs> put a string to her hair, they did something with her hair where they pulled on it, and so it looked like she'd been shot in the head and the bullet went out the back of her head, and then she falls out, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, like, that was cool, like, alright. But yeah, it's one of those. I had that written down too, I put, what in the fuck was that headshot to a karate chick? I said, I put maybe one of the worst kill shots reactions death ever, but the funny thing is, they started off, right, for that scene, is she's in there training some 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 ladies to be karate experts, and you're expecting her to be a karate expert. The fact that she runs away from those two guys, as scared as she is, and doesn't really fight them, you're kind of like, I was a little disappointed, I was like, well then, you're not a Karate expert. <laughs> that and then the uh, the flamethrower Zippo. Yeah. That is the one thing I'm wishing Tarantino had kept. I was like, we could have really yeah. enjoyed a flamethrower Zippo in Kill Bill. I don't care who had it. <laughs> Even if it was one of Bill's weapons, the flamethrower yeah. Zippo feels like that should have made yeah. its way into the Tarantino universe. Well, and this is where one of those things where I'm thinking like, if you were, if we all separately saw this movie or say I went and saw the movie and I come back to you guys and I'm like, guys, there's this scene... I don't want to explain it, guys. Come on. We got to go to the movie. I got to show you. And then when it happened, I'll be nudging you going, look, look, she just burned that guy's face off. Isn't that cool? And you'd be like, you're fucking crazy. Or you'd be like, oh, my God. You know, it was very entertaining. Devon, what did you think of this film? I mean, I thought it was the, the first. I mean, it has a really slow start. Like, because the, yeah. the, gath the gathering does. of the team 
feels like makes the movie feel like we're watching a sequel to a movie that's like happened already. <laughs> yeah. Like the, yes. the re the re the characters already know each other and you're kinda like, huh, how do we but meet then each they other? take like forty five minutes to like put the team together. Like, hey, like that's supposed to be like a three montage thing, Max, and like let's yeah. get let's get into it because like once it like really gets going in the back end, it's a little bit more interesting. But like the the first 30, 40 minutes, I was I was pretty bored. Uh, I was like I was like this is more yeah. the dull squad if you ask me, but, um, but uh, <laughs> it does take a long time to get to where the need to go. But I give him credit because he kills like the, like he was saying, like Phil was saying, there are two girls who are already on the squad. She's just going to meet them. We got to meet and they whack those bitches quickly. And you're kind of like, imagine if Tarantino did the first thing, like, you know, these were the divas and they were killed already. And we had two new divas yeah, brought yeah, in. He was kind of yeah. like, I don't know what he was trying to do with the story, but it was, it was impressive for the fact that he kind of threw a curveball of like, well, we're expecting a team already assembled and then they got to find like the replacements yeah. <laughs> like the replacement killers or like when you're watching mission impossible and you're like oh estevez is in this movie it's awesome estevez gets killed right away in the elevator and you're like wait a minute what the fuck like what happened but this happened even quicker i agreed i was on my phone i was like okay and i'm trying to keep an eye on it okay what was funny that made me laugh was when she's like she goes, oh, we had a package in here for a week now. And I'm thinking she's going to get a package. And she brings in a bird. And I'm like, this bird's been there for a week and nobody said shit about it. It's a fucking carrier pigeon. Yeah. I was like, Game of Thrones. Or maybe it was the owl from fucking Harry yeah. Potter. Everyone gets an owl. Yeah. Send in the mail. Got a canister crazy. for microfilm. Yeah. Well, when we finally meet the bad guy and we meet that there's this other girl involved who clearly just there for sexual reasons because he says to her, you're useful to me in various ways. I put down like, what a charmer. Like, he's... <laughs> He's just, he's the best part. But he, I Amen. was going to say, the guy he's plays a good bad he guy. He is spectacular. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it keeps the movie moving because whenever he's on, you're kind of like, okay. Yeah. Like, he's very charming, where I'm sure Bill gets some of it. But at no point do you actually hate the guy because there's no point where you go, oh, he's a horrible bad guy. Like, where Bill, we know what Bill did. Yeah. You know, opening credits, shoots her in the head, and she's like, it's your baby. And he's like, I don't give a fuck. Bang, yeah. shot in the head. And you're like, oh, okay, we know who he is. This guy, you're just kind of like, I don't know. I don't really I really have a hate towards him. I mean, he's he's so like he's very entertaining and like kind of has that charm to him. But then like and then really like whenever it got to the scene of like whenever it reveals that like, you know, Sabrina and him were in love and they like work together and all that stuff. Like that weird scene where they're like having like little tete-a-tete, but then they're like <laughs> kind of like play pretending killing each other. I'm like, wait. What is this? Why haven't we been doing this the rest of the movie? Because this is like fun and weird. Like yeah. the, that was when I was really having fun. I thought there was going to be a little TNA there. I thought, oh, yeah. I like titties. Yeah. 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 That was yeah. my first thought. I was like, oh, like there's Scott, no doubt. Scott, in my you're mind. not the only in one. In five seconds, like, here comes some titties. Like, all right, boobs nope. coming out. All right. I know. I'm not trying to be sexist. But I apologize. But okay. she was in the movie for her boobs. Like they were just they were sticking out yeah. the entire yeah. time. And you're just like, at any moment. They're coming yeah. out because it's the 70s and 80s. If this was an 80s film, those things are out right off the bat. That's how we meet her. She comes out of some pool yeah. and there's her boobs like instantly. What was great. Did you guys notice the girl that's a stripper? You know, she's from Pastor, Pastor Pussycat Kill Kill. Yes. Yes. The girl with the darker like, hair. I was like, oh, shit. This is her eight years later. Like, awesome. I did like that scene in the bedroom was cool because you're thinking like maybe. They're gonna, and then he's like, I'm going to kill you anyway. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, and he's like, because later on down the road, you would try to kill me 
And you're like, that's true. Like, that's the first bad guy who's ever not been fooled and been like, okay. But mm-hmm. then he gets fooled when she's like, I'm going to pour the martini on you and then unplug the fucking electric cord and throw it on your wet body. Great, great electricity. Yeah, with great electricity. Little, yeah, going uh, all over yeah. the body. The, 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 like the, almost the Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. Going up blue. Yeah, uh, now, I don't know who they hired to be the other henchman of him. The maybe Greek guy in the shirt with his chest meat hanging out. And he goes to the carnival. And if you watch it, you know that they're on a time crunch. They don't have a lot of film. And we're, we're talking, they're shooting on film. So that's where the money's going. You got to process yeah. this. We don't got yeah. time for extra stuff. But he forgets his lines <laughs> as he's talking to the girl. Yeah. And you stumbles him. And they're just like, fuck it. We yeah, got it. We, we got, got it. Go. Like, good enough. You know what I mean? Because you're just kind of like, he's like stumbling. I rewound it. I was like, maybe I, <laughs> yeah. no, maybe I didn't hear what he said. Yeah. And I was like, nope. He fucking stumbled on the line. And they said, fuck it. In the can, check the gate. I think there was on. one in the office time. where the senator flubbed his line, and then this guy flubbed his line. But it's that thing where, like Quentin says, when he did my best friend's birthday, he's like, I learned about directing from doing that. And I realized, like, oh, shit, this is all shit. But that was his film school. And then he went and made Reservoir Dogs. This movie, I was like, no offense to you guys, but I think this is a movie we could make. I think we would be really good at making. <laughs> I think stuff. we could make a better one. But what saves the film is when they get to the compound Mm -hmm. and the girls are just... Now, we're not sure what time of day this is being shot. Uh, Sometimes (laughs) it's night night, and sometimes it's the afternoon. And it varies between even shots. Sometimes I'm like, okay. But they're just lighting things up left (laughs) and right. Just killing motherfuckers left and right. It made it very entertaining. Like, I was in. From that moment on, I was like, I "I can see where a 10-year-old Tarantino would be enamored. When you get to this end of the part of the movie... You forget the bullshit happened in the beginning. You just kind of like these chicks are just lighting dudes up, and you're kind of yeah. like, I'm kind of in on this. What was really fun for me when they were all in their matching uniforms? I'm like, oh, it's on now. All right, we're in uniforms. Yes. Let's go. And it was it was just like this badass moment. But it was funny those little things of before they're in their uniforms of them driving in the jeep. First of all, that girl explains all her. I got a mace. Uh, ring and I got this yes. and I got this exploding stuff that you put in alcohol. The exploding and then drinks, they meet those which guys, you know, is coming. And back the guys around. are supposed to be like, "What are you girls doing?" But they're more like interrogating them in a way. But they're supposed to be fun. And then it's this whole thing of here, have some drinks, and they don't offer it to the girls. They just pass it back and forth, and I don't feel good. <laughs> Boom, they explode into nothing, like just gone. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And it's like, oh, so good. Uh, yeah. I, I find it funny to like imagine Tarantino like watching this and being like, yeah, I bet this is what the Viper Squad was kind of doing before, before, uh, you know, <laughs> the, it, or if they were, if they put their skills, you know, to, to good use, I suppose. Like, I mean, uh, the doll squad, I mean, I suppose they're supposed to be the, the good guys, but yeah, they, they kill quite, quite a bit, but it's like the, in the first half, we kind of see like, you know, we get like little, little glimpses of like kind of what we're going to get in this back half of like, you know, like uh, whenever she like blows like the boat up and like, it's like, Oh, okay. So we like get these little things, but then like in the back half, it's just like, like, why didn't you guys, like in the first half, they want to be like, Oh, Hey, let's show them doing spy work in, in skies and and using their gadgets and stuff like that but then they're they're just saying a bunch of names and words and i don't know what the plot of this movie is so like let's <laughs> let's cut the let's cut the spy shit and let's just let's just, and then they just murk everybody for the 
the last 30 minutes. (laughs) The guy's like, look, this foreplay's not going well. Let's get right to the money (laughs) shot. And it was glorious because you're just this gun shooting everywhere. uh, One of the things is all of a sudden out of the back of the... All of a sudden they have a bazooka. Like they had had one chance, one bazooka. I thought that guy had a flamethrower, but he has something that's spitting out something. No, it was a flamethrower, but they're like, look, does anyone know what a flamethrower is? And we're going to pretend it's a shotgun or something. (laughs) But then also talking about like all they spent all their money on these guns. The shotguns, I noticed no shells were coming out when they racked it back. That's the only ones. It would just, they may not have been able to find, uh, I mean, 1973, I don't know if they had blank-firing shotguns yeah. at that point. You know I mean? I don't, uh, don't know what were, they did or didn't happen. Yeah, there was no shell. that ex- They put shells in, but none came <laughs> out. It was funny. Um, but, yeah. And then when the one French up, guy has the worst French accent. It's not even French. Oh, he goes, yeah. the what, representative from France. And he's like, avant <laughs> d'un You're like, What? What's this Pepe Le Pew I was like, this guy's going to be a real French guy. Nope, he's not a real French guy. Some guy who took one year of French yeah. in high school and like, good enough. Yeah. But yeah, that bazooka, when they pull that bazooka out, just to hand it to her to shoot once, I'm like, it's got a little uh, padding on it and everything. I'm like, she puts a, the rocket in it. I'm like, okay. And again, that <laughs> fake explosion. The really good explosion, though, was when they blew up the compound because it kind of looked oh, like yeah, it, was, yeah. it was like from... Eye on the mountain. They filmed yeah. something against either uh, a blue or screen or something. Bushes like, you, in they, front they used of it. it. Yeah, yeah. There was a good flash, and so that I did that as opposed to the other. <laughs> yeah, the other just those guys disappearing. It's yeah. so cheesy. It's it's so cheesy. It's good. Yeah. That, you know, like like there are some movies that are just so bad they're yeah. good. It's not trying to be serious, and I don't think this. Maybe maybe Mister Mister V was trying to be serious, but he at least said at one point he goes, you know what? I got all this money still left. Fuck it. Yeah, bullets. Bullets and babes, we'll do it. And yeah, do the last thirty minutes. You're just you're in. Yeah, you just you're like fuck it. Yeah. yeah. And the um, something else that I was thinking, they probably all of his actors, Quentin's actors, have to be in a certain mindset to be when he's like, "We're gonna watch Doll Squad," or "I want you to go home and watch this." And they're probably like, "What is he thinking?" But you got to be in that mind. Okay, he wants us to kind of be like this group, but not this group. There was a movie a friend of mine told me to see Samurai Cop. It's filmed in L.A. It's like <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah, the guy awful. had shaved yeah. his head, but then they called him back for reshoot, so he's wearing a wig and a hat. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a lethal weapon, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and don't forget, there is a scene that I said earlier where one girl wears the face of someone oh. else, but when they take off the mask, you can tell. Like they at least said, we're not going to be able to make this look like Mission Impossible, but they take off the fake mask. They did and- it so well. Some of this stuff, like the girl getting shot in the head, was pretty cool. The thing of like didn't show. Then po- just showed her holding the mask and being like, I knew it was, I knew it was Tristan's head like out of camera for a sec. And yeah. I brought her back up and it was like, and her hair was so much bigger than like what she had with yeah. the mask on. So it's like, wait, did the mask also have a wig on too? Oh, okay. I can't ask questions. But that did lead to probably the coolest moment is that girl who was the original, who was only there for certain reasons, but she gets murked. Like they don't even realize they killed the wrong girl. Like he says, I'm done with her. Take her out. And they go in and yeah. kill her. And it's just like they forget about it, but like she got killed. That was that was, that was a pretty. That Which, was like probably the coolest it was moment. Hilar- that just kind of gets hilarious because they're sneaking in there with her, sneaking the other one out, and you're like, <laughs> you're like, is this part of? And here's the thing: until they show that guy closer, I'm thinking he's wearing headphones and he's listening to an <laughs> album, and because he's kind of walking around. And then when they show him closer, he's wearing a fucking Kaiser helmet, and you're like, what the fuck? Hey, it was cheap. They found, yeah, well, they and then found you see all Jeep. the military. They're all wearing their little army helmets. You're like, oh, my gosh. 
They almost look like they're part of chips. Yeah, part yeah. Of the yeah I was going to say, they're not real helmets. <laughs> they're like higher, like, yeah, it was, it was funny. And now it's time to present the evidence. We're going to jump right into the influences, and there's not many All of right. them. And <laughs> so we'll get right into them. Number one. Obviously, the most notable one is there are five female operatives, all of them with their own specialties, or they were supposed to have mm-hmm. their own specialties. This really helps inspire the Fox Force 5 fake show discussed in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Through that discussion of this and that scene with Uma and then QT, they then transform that into what would become the divas, which obviously they take and really, I mean, there is a strong stretch between what Fox Force 5 is and the divas are. And you can see like it's like Doll Squad, oh, Fox Force 5, yeah. slash kind of uh, Charlie's Angels yeah. too. the divas, which is like way on the mm. other spectrum. Like, you know, these girls are helping out and they're kind of sexy. And these girls are going to kill you just for breathing. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? They're a whole different squad, the divas compared to even down it's the like line of the It's like that Pam Anderson VIPs. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like an evolution to kind of get to that point. Like oh, I said, yeah. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Oh, they're cute. They have matching outfits. They're like, these motherfuckers are serious. You're in trouble. Number two. Amen, or what was it? Uh, Amen, Amen, whatever his name was. I forget. Amen or whatever. And Sabrina's relationship is very reminiscent of the bride and Bills mm-hmm. in the sense that they were once lovers, but now they are fierce adversaries. Yeah. Maybe not as fierce as we get in Kill Bill, but we're supposed to believe that at one time they really did have a connection, and now they're both at opposite spectrums. Obviously not as severe as why Bride and Bill, but uh, still, nevertheless, you definitely can see where we get the genesis of what would be that relationship. And that they both trained together. Like, they came up being good, and then he went bad, and she went, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's blowing up rockets, and she's wearing tight outfits. We forgot the best part. The the bubonic plague is what he wants to start. He's injecting rats. (laughs) I didn't want to give away everything. Sending rats to France and Spain and all over, and you do exactly as they say and release it. And I'm like, maybe I get my money and I get my vaccine, and I just sit there with my rats and I never release them. Like I love the sound effects of just the rat wheel, of just like the hamster wheel being the sound (laughs) of rats. Like just my wife was sleeping. She thought it was our puppy wanting to go out to pee, and she wakes up and she's like. And she goes, oh, it's TV. I go, yeah, it's a rat. (laughs) Number three. And then staying with Amin and Sabrina. Amin, even though he's rekindled his, uh, well, or at least reconnected with Sabrina, who he still has feelings for, he's still going to kill her. Just like Bill and Beatrix. Like, even though Bill sees B and he's happy that she gets to see their daughter and this, and then they have those little moments. He knows that this that that's not going to happen. There's no rekindling. We are past the point of no return. One of us is going to die. There was a very brief reunion for our daughter, and she's really going to understand <laughs> what life and death is when she wakes up in the morning, and one of us is fucking yeah. gone. So obviously he takes it and twists it and takes it much further, but it's all kind of laid out. And when you're 10, you know, that can inform you. Yeah. Like like I said, with Beastmaster, phew, that was amazing. Uh, yeah. Like Beastmaster, and then that's why I liked He-Man. Like it was just like, yeah. oh my God, this is what I want. Because this is like the most dramatic sense of it. Because again, like, you know, she she's like running the secret organization because she just like wants to do good, uh, you know, with all these regular gals in the world. And then he's like, no, no, I want to, you know, destroy the world. So it's like you have the, you know, the the dramatic difference of it, you know, like, of course, is like always going to kind of appeal to a kid because it's always like kind of more the you know traditional good versus evil type thing like when you have like that dramatic 
of a, you know, and, you know, ends of spectrums that they're on. Yeah. And then what if you put them together? And like you said, this time, instead of they're both on the good side, they're both on the evil yeah. side. We always forget. Yeah. Even though mm-hmm. the bride lost her yeah. child, she's a piece of shit yeah. too. Like yeah. we, we have, it says, this is Walter White. We have really fallen in love with a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a good human being. Yeah. She's one of the hateful eight. She's a bastard. Yeah. She, mean bastard, you hang. She's <laughs> exactly. one of them. Um, but, you know, we fall in love because, you know, what if you take them and now they're parents yeah. together? You know, and Bill's heartbroken. Yeah. Like the funny thing is, is you can feel for Bill. You can really feel for Bill. And I mean, look, he's a horrible person. But like he says, when you break the heart of a murderous bastard, this is what happens. Yeah, yeah. If you break the heart of some some <laughs> guy who plays guitar and wears khaki, maybe not as much. But when you break the heart of a guy who kills people for yeah. a living, this you're going to get a, a yep. big time reaction. Exactly. exactly. Number four. And lastly, tying into what I said about the soundtrack. I'm going to give, this is one of my favorite parts of the film. Nicholas Karras, I believe his name is properly spelled, or Nicholas Karras. His soundtrack gives off heavy QT vibes and may also be the inspiration behind why Tarantino includes dialogue on his soundtracks as the Doll Squad soundtrack has nine dialogue tracks on it. Oh, wow. I felt that I felt one of the best parts about this film was its soundtrack, and which is why it made me feel so much like a 1970s TV show because... Just the music he put into it. It keeps, it, you know, it was always moving fast. It kept us going. We're kind of like, oh, this is exciting. Yeah. And then, lo and behold, you can think of, like, you when you go back and look at the 70s TV shows, very reminiscent of what we would hear in the late 70s for the TV shows, whether it's Chips, whether it's Charlie's Angels and all those shows. This soundtrack, from, you yeah. know, regardless of what you want to say about the movie, it's really pretty fucking oh, good. Yeah. And then if, I, I looked up, looked it up, and that's when I found there's nine dialogue tracks, and I'm wow. thinking, wow, yeah. that's ahead of its time. That's before Tarantino or anyone else did it. So hats off to Mr. Carras or however you say it. It's really good. Like, it, it's really good, and I love that the movie knows that it's really good, and I love when a cheap movie, like, finds something that they have, and then they're just like, okay, we're going to, like, use this, because, I mean, there is music in about 90% of, the like, the scenes in this. Like, it never goes away. There was, I remember there was even one scene where the music was, like, mixed slightly, like, louder than the dialogue, <laughs> yeah. and it was like, I was like, I cannot hear what they're, like, even actually saying, but it's like, hey, but this 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 jazz track, it's hitting, though, um, you know. It's it like, you know, if you, if you got it, you know, you got to put it front and center. Now, gentlemen, were there any references from the Doll Squad that I missed for Kill Bill? Number five. I noticed uh, the credits at the end that would say their name and it would say the actor and the name of their character. It was reminiscent of Renita Green, you know, all that. Oh, very good. And yeah. it was in the yellow, like the Quentin font. Like that, but also that's yellow Columbo TV shows. Like it's that yellow, even uh, Poker Face is doing that yellow font. And now it's time to read the verdict. Now, gentlemen, I already know the answer to this, but we're going to ask you anyways. <laughs> was QT inspired by this film or did he blatantly rip it off and its special effects? I could see him liking it, I guess. I mean, not inspired but being like i said being like oh my god this lighter thing you got to see this lighter thing or these guys explode from drinking this liquor like oh or even like we said the characterization of those two talking on the bed like it's so different it's not a guy being like but i'm evil and her being like but come to the good side it's just him being like yeah i'm still gonna kill you yeah i mean i think that's pretty much like about the heaviest like angle i know that the 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 team angle is supposed to kind of play into it but Again, it's like you kind of have a very different team here of, you know, like doing something completely different. But, um, but the, yeah, the, the dynamic between uh, Sabrina and Amon definitely um, uh, has a little bit of influence. And maybe he, again, like kind of like 
and, you know, and it took some inspiration of like being like, well, this is like kind of what the divas could do if they weren't evil, if they wanted to, but they don't. So it's like, let's see what the other end of this looks like. But um, I'd say mainly in the relationship, uh, kind of uh, star cross, but like star cross killers, uh, <laughs> ankle of it all. In the case of the Doll Squad, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. All right, well, let's wrap this up with your questions. And Mr. Devon will ask you first, which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more? And would you recommend both or only one of them to my listeners? I mean, I think you guys can definitely guess by the uh, <laughs> length of our conversation. <laughs> that is, uh, Lady Snowblood, like, I mean, it's, you know, a, a, a classic for a reason. And I'm really glad I got to to see it because, it again, I, I think I am a little bit harder on Kill Bill Volume 1 uh, than most. But then seeing Lady Snowblood, like, makes me kind of look back and, uh, you know, appreciate and respect it a little bit more with uh, the nods. But also, like, I mean, this is kind of like a, a heavy inspiration for um, the, the the Kill Bill, you know, Volume 1 and 2. Um, you know, this uh, the I think you could have enough references to where you could even split it between the two of them. But so so I'm really glad that I did get to to see it and see where uh, some of these things came from. And uh, again, it's it's nice that he took you know certain things that that are interesting and um, that only kind of work for this style like that that it would in Lady Snowblood and being like okay, so I couldn't exactly rip it off even if I really wanted to. So like okay, what is the way that I can take something and make it work to my advantage? And that is. The, the the things that he um you know the way that he adapts so so getting to see this side by side with Kill Bill Volume One like makes me appreciate the way that he uses his influence so uh, definitely recommended Lady Snowblood Mr Duke which of the two films that we covered did you enjoy more and would you recommend both or just one to my listeners of course Lady Snowblood is so good but Doll Squad though is so much fun like you said it's it's one where when it starts, you're like, I don't know about this. But then when the shit happens, it's like, that's just crazy. Like this lighter, like, oh, my God. Then you're like, and the explosions, you're like, they're going with it. Like, okay. And then that whole fight at the end, you're just like, okay. So, like, maybe some people might be like, oh, it's not for me. But if you like, I don't know. If you want to see where Charlie's Angels came from, watch that, you know. Yeah, probably if you're a Gen Xer or older, you'll you'll really enjoy it because it'll be very yeah. reminiscent and, and have a lot of, like, nostalgia feel, too. Because a feel. Yeah, it yeah. feels like, yeah, it's almost like a, yeah, like you can almost see, like, where the action TV series of the 70s kind of got a little bit of its inspiration from, you know. They threw a little bit more money and it got better stars, but it really is a, a heavy uh, influence yeah. there. For sure. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references or influences within Tarantino films? Well, I mean, again, I, I'd kind of heard like the, the, you know, the, the influences that he took going into it. And so like seeing it, like it's more like, obviously it's new just because the movie is new to me. Um, but like in kind of seeing it and then it like, I guess like none of the influences like surprised me. And like whenever I would see an influence in an homage, I was like, oh, that makes complete sense. So I guess I like wasn't surprised by it in like that angle. Well, my answer for that, because I wrote it down here, was being as Doll Squad was a new watch for me. Although being as it's for the show, you're always like, okay, wait, I got to say something. But, you know, I got to, I noticed things. 
But being as Doll Squad was new, I was watching that more of like, oh, let me see this. And I noticed the, I was like, oh, the yellow fucking credits. That's awesome. Of, you know, where it would freeze frame on the girls and it would say the name and uh, at the end. But, um, but Lady Snowblood, though, when you're watching it again, the more you watch it, it's just so beautiful. It's just a good movie to watch. But you just see all that stuff. It's the most that he borrowed from is that he was influenced by is this movie, The Lady Snowblood. So it's very cool. And lastly for you, Mr. Taylor, did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak? And if so, in what way? No, I, I, I think it. I think it just. Uh, I think it further cemented the the way that I felt about the way that again the way he uses his influences and homages. Like I already kind of felt that, and I feel like now I'm just a little bit more cemented in it. That like kind of seeing like this is like kind of, um, you know, maybe um the most that he has kind of taken out of influence out of like putting into one other one besides maybe Django Unch- uh, Django Unchained but uh, still kind of just cementing the way that I had already like appreciated the way that he made these things it's like a, it's like a uh, it's like his kill bills like the the reverse mirrored companion piece for Lady Snowblood in a way Mr. Duke no uh, it never does i just you know, I watch these movies and I imagine if I'm his age or whenever I watch a movie that's an older movie, I always imagine that it's my first time watching it back then. So I'm not going, so I'm not going, oh, look at the blood this is so stupid. Like, uh, I'm watching it and like, okay, it's slower paced because it's older or whatever. So yeah, it's more fun to watch these and just imagine like, wow, how would you switch Lady Snowblood to be Kill Bill? Like, like how he you know, just reverses and flips things on its head and is like, I'm going to do the killing, but where you don't see the robbery. I'm going to do this, but, you know, you don't see that. I'm going to do dating the big man's wife, but nothing happens, you know. And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guests, Mr. Devon Taylor, co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, and Mr. Phil Duke, co-host of Making Tarantino, the podcast, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced the first half of his fourth film, Kill Bill, Volume 1. Now, you can find the link to both of my guest podcasts and their socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as friend of the Church, Sean Wheeler, co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, joins me once again for our monthly hymnal devotional. This time, we're taking a deep dive into the Kill Bill Volume 1 soundtrack. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.